And it's basically Jacob versus Esau because it's the church versus the Herods who were descended from Esau. And it's like they're struggling in the womb to see who's going to be the firstborn, who's going to be, who's going to get the inheritance. That's what it's about. All I could see was this light coming in. The Holy Spirit went. Into me. I have never been the same since then. That was it. I'm done. I was born again. Welcome to the Weird Christian Podcast. I am your host, Samuel Delgado, and this is episode 79. I interview Michael Bull about the book of Revelation. And let me just go ahead and tell you, this one is not for the faint of heart. This is uh, the longest episode I've done up until this point. Uh, but Michael said that he had no time limit, so we went for it. Uh, we talk about, of course, the book of Revelation. We cover it from the partial preterist, post-millennial view. But within the conversation, man, we really kind of get into everything. Uh, as, of course, the study of Revelation is a study of the entire Bible. So, hope you enjoy it. Uh, this is one you may need to run back. Uh, as we get into the weeds. So, with no further ado, let's get weird. Welcome to the show. Like I was saying, I'm I'm pumped, pumped, pumped um, to be doing this. I mean, as we were kind of talking, uh, this being weird, eschatology is kind of like my wheelhouse as far as what we're, we're covering. And I have not had someone come on, I guess I have had a preterist, come on before, but we didn't touch the book of Revelation. We talked mostly about the Olivet Discourse. Um, and uh, anyway, so that that actually, since that guest kind of sent me on this, um, on this, you know, journey I've had G.K. Bill on uh, to kind of give his position. I've had a lot of futurists. Um, so this will be the first time to, to go over the book of Revelation from, from a preterist standpoint. So I'm I'm, I'm pumped uh, to do that. Um, anyway, and so I'll just say off the top, man, if, if you if you're like me, I know you you, you said this in your book. Um, there's people that will shy away from the Book of Revelation because uh, they believe it's unknowable, and then there's people that obsess, and that's definitely me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I you know I I that's uh, it's just been I'm trying to to crack it and figure it out. And there's, I've not heard a real good, um, a really solid uh, interpretation, but I, I think the, the Preterist view, if I'm being honest, uh, I think the Preterist view is, is the one that's being the most honest with the actual text itself. Mm, um, yeah. uh, and I, I just, I have not embraced it because of, and you're covering this from a different standpoint. The, my biggest thing with not fully embracing preterism is because most of it hinges on the, you know, Joseph, the writings of Josephus and, and the Jewish wars. Mm -hmm. And when I hear yeah. interpreters talk about it and they, they rely so heavily on it, I'm like, I mean, that's <clears throat> that's great and all, but it's 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 <laughs> it, it's it comes across. I don't I don't know the word for it. It's like. I mean, really, you know, it's like the whole thing's based off yeah. of jo Josephus, and it's just, 
<clears throat> it's kind of like a house of cards. I, think, I, I can't, I, I can't roll with that. Yeah, the the question I had there was, and that's what when I read um, David Chilton's commentary, which was my first introduction to preterism. Yeah. Uh, can you uh, is can you hear me okay? Oh yeah, you're fine. Yeah, great. Um, was why would the key to this book of prophecy be outside of the Bible? That yeah. was my yeah. question. You know, oh, yeah, and yeah, and it didn't really sort of make sense. So when I came across uh, James Jordan's interpretation, who was from the same school, but he developed things a bit more, and uh, yeah, his his key is the Old Testament, and that that's how the whole Bible works. It's it's so yeah. self referencing, and when I saw how he operated and was listening to his lectures, I thought he is the first person I've ever heard who can actually make sense of the details and with such ease simply by going to the Old Testament. And what I realized was it's 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 akin to um, meme warfare, you know, like it's the same, the Bible uses the same meme, memes mm. over and over again mm. and just kind yeah. of adjust them for a new purpose. And we're supposed to get the jokes. And so mm. Revelation has, it's meme warfare. And, and the people who, hopefully the Jewish rulers, in some sense at least, if they had any access to it, uh, or the, and the New Testament in general, when Jesus was preaching, they would have understood what he meant mm. when he referred to the Old Testament. Things that we don't always get uh, that they would have it would have hit the mark. And he they we use memes to engage people, and Jesus and the apostles used the Old Testament to engage people, but we don't know the Old Testament well enough, so they mystify us. So we're not getting the jokes. That's the problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And you, uh, Man, I've just been on a tear reading through uh, James Jordan's stuff. Um, and it's, it's it's unbelievable, man. So, uh, you know, you kind of got us going a little bit, but I want to uh, back up a little bit and just have you uh, give sure. the listener a little bit of background as far as, you know, who you are and, and what got you into Bible prophecy. Okay. Um, well, I'm a graphic designer, <laughs> so you know. Um, but I, I'm a visual thinker, and uh, always have been. And I think if you're going to understand the Bible, uh, you have to think visually because it's it's and it's not just dealing in imagery, but it's also dealing in architecture. And unless you can think spatially, and in you know various sort of domains and constructs it's uh, you're going to struggle. And if you don't recognize certain arrangements as they appear again and again, uh, um, you know, I'll give an example. If in you had the two bronze pillars at, at, in Solomon's temple at the entrance mm -hmm. and in the book of Ezekiel, the, the pillar of fire of the Lord is standing on the threshold. Now, if you can't, firstly, you need to understand that those two pillars represented the two trees in the Garden of Eden. Mm -hmm. But also then, you know, if you don't notice that the, the glory of the Lord standing between these two pillars has a correspondence with Samson standing between the two pillars in the Philistine temple, mm -hmm. and the same imagery comes up again and again and again, you think, okay, what is this third pillar? Um, that That's where, and God just, he doesn't explain himself. He's like... I'm just, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to show you. Mm. And unless you you start to, and the two cherubim in the, at the entrance to the garden with the flaming sword, the mm -hmm. single flaming sword mm. between them, wow. 
Mm. Um, the same construct comes up again and again and made of different things, but uh, and Samson's name means sunrise. Mm-hmm. And so he's, he's this brightness shining, even though he had no eyes, you know, which mm. is part of the part of the uh, the joke. Mm. Um, so unless you think spatially, you're going to struggle. But also to uh, the other thing is that the Bible's made of repeated sequences. And it's, it's like, uh, it is a bit like strands of DNA in the sense that the same sequences get replayed over and over like a tune, but in different ways, sometimes major, sometimes minor. And we're supposed to pick that up in the same way that you might uh, hear, you know, a theme in a movie that when the bad guy comes in, Darth Vader's theme and you go, oh, here he is, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Bible's actually written so that we need, we use all the skills that we use when we're watching a good movie or reading a novel or it's written for human beings, but it's mm-hmm. it's written in with the same sort of strategies and de- literary devices and visual tropes and all that sort of stuff. So ac- academics don't think like that. They just see everything as something brand new and it's isolated from everything else. And so often the jokes just go over their heads. Um, one person who does get the references is is Beale, but he doesn't think in sequences as far as I can tell. He sort of um, misses that side of things. So he's got the, he goes, right, this connects to this. And it's like playing a game of snap, you know, where you have two cards that match and you go, right, snap. And yeah. that's, but that's not enough. You have to go, okay, um, John 3.16 works through, the five books of the Pentateuch. And that's part of Jesus' reference there. And you go, right, now I understand what he's saying to Nicodemus because he's yeah. working through the sequence. And Revelation works through all, all the patterns that were established back in, in the books of Moses. And you can't, they're the key. The structure is the key. Uh, so unless you understand that it's recapitulating that pattern, which is repeated all through the Bible. It's not new when you get to Revelation. This is kind of like this, the the final version of the snowball, you know, like it's just now it's giant and it's just it's picked up everything on the way down. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's one, uh, there's a, a, a British academic, I can't remember her name, but she said Revelation is a pastiche. And she got that far. She realized that it's just grabbing a whole lot of stuff and kind of putting it together like a collage. And uh, that's what it's doing. But you have to understand the sequence to get all the references. And the good thing is it's it's not that complicated a pattern. It starts in Genesis 1. Um, so, yeah, I think that's um, that's the key. Yeah, it's it's getting the references. Yeah. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> it was, uh, well, you gave us some background on yourself, and it was like how you got into Bible prophecy. Yeah, um, well, I, I, that was, yeah, James Jordan, and he's he's got a phrase he likes to use, which is he calls it the Bible's, we're getting into the deep weird now. So mm-hmm. he likes the word weird, and uh, but the thing is once you get into it, I mean, he's he's he was always attracted to the difficult parts of the Bible, and wanting to yeah. figure them out, which yeah. is fantastic. And he does a fantastic job. Um, so when you get into it, it's not actually that weird. You know, it's just, it's no different than what we see in a lot of other things. But yeah, so I heard his lectures and I thought, this needs a wider audience. So I yeah. I wrote a book, which is about 800 pages long, which was like, someone needs to put what these guys have done all together in one book. And I did it and it's still kind of, it holds, the thesis holds up, but it was a bit sloppy. This is 2008. 
Um, and so then, uh, since then, I've been, you know, kind of working on it and refining it and uh, systematizing it a bit. But, um, you know, that's and blogging and, and writing. So, uh, yeah, that's 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 my story. It's just one of those things. I'd always had questions like yourself. You think there's got to be some internal logic here that's governing this. God doesn't write nonsense. It's not babble. Um, it's got to make sense. And it turns out it's so meticulously engineered that it's, you know, yes, yeah, as, as you would have read, um, it's it's a fractal. Like it's, you know, it's the same pattern working at multiple levels. And so you can make, you can make perfect sense of it. Yeah. So, uh, mm. and I'm still a graphic, still a graphic designer, you know, that's, <laughs> that pays the bills. Yeah. Well, man, and that that's, that's wild because, you know, when I, when I picked up your material and I, it must have been like a recommendation that came up and I was looking for, I don't even know. I think I think Amazon recommended your book, but I came across oh, it. Okay. It wasn't someone saying steer clear of this guy. I have no idea. <laughs> I, I think that's how I came across it. Either that yeah. or I looked up Matrix and I, I don't think I did that. I think it came up as a suggestion, uh, yeah. but it came up from some other author that uh anyway but when i when sure. i read your material i thought you know this guy is is thinking differently you're not shy how, how you've taken what james b jordan peter lightheart and some of their mm -hmm. interpretations and you kind of take it to the next level uh and you certainly uh i think you've done that um so i, I appreciate that you um you know pay homage to you know you, where your foundation lies, but I also appreciate that you you're also bringing something unique to the table. A lot of authors just kind of like recycle um, material, yeah. and they're not really like you know bring anything new to the table. They're just it's almost like a mm -hmm. lesser version of what the author did. Uh, but I feel like you did the opposite. You 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 kind of uh, again just brought more out as far as what they the, the work they have already put in. Um, and uh, so I, I noticed you said that you're also writing for Theopolis Institute as well. Um, which James B. Jordan, I guess that's Peter Lightheart's thing. Uh, how did that come uh, come about? Uh, well, I asked Peter Lightheart to write a forward for my Bible Matrix book, mm. which was a summary of that really big book. Yeah, uh, and pestered him enough that he eventually said yes. Mm. Um, he's a lovely guy; like he's just so gracious, and he's he's been uh, very encouraging. I mean, you know, he's. He's a pedo-baptist. I'm a I'm baptistic. I wouldn't call myself a baptist, but you know, um, but you know, we, we he's very uh, what's the word um, ecumenical. I don't know, but he puts mm. up with me being a baptist, you know, um, in that sense. But uh, he's he's he does have a, a history of encouraging people who have got something to offer, regardless of their differences. And he's he's just very gracious, and he realizes that. This is a group project. Mm. Insights are going to come from different people because that's how God works, and that theology over the centuries is, um, you know, God didn't spell everything out from the start. We've got the basics, obviously, but this is this is how He matures us. That we're supposed to figure things out, mm. and and meanwhile be be treat each other with respect and charity and and whatever but um when he started the theopolis uh, blog he invited me to write which i was quite surprised about uh and that was you know i had to lift my game as far as the quality of my writing goes which has been fun um yeah and also too i used to i used to write 
basically just, I was a terrible, it was like someone who drives, but they're not keeping the passenger in mind. You know, I'd be sudden stops and starts. And for me, it was just a matter of getting ideas down on the page. I thought mm-hmm. I really need to learn to write for um, the the reader. Mm-hmm. And so my style is a sort of a a, a a mix of James Jordan, Peter Lightheart, and probably Douglas Wilson, who's a bit controversial, but, you know, he's he's pretty edgy the way he writes and very funny as well. So it's a real, it's a mix of those three because they're the ones who I've kind of read the most. Yeah. But um so yeah, so I mean, I, I probably write two or three times a year, and uh, you know, he's just been very encouraging. You know, he's not that much older than me, maybe a decade, but I still think of him like my a spirit, a spiritual dad. You know, these guys are my yeah. spiritual fathers as far as theology goes, but also with how um, they have a good sense of humor. Uh, they're they love looking at the tough bits of the Bible and trying to work things out. And and they submit to the word. They, they don't judge the scriptures. They they're like if if something doesn't make sense, the problem is with us, not mm. with the Bible. And mm. I mean, you know, I had some years back in a in a fundamental Baptist church, and despite the fact that they were dispensational and not particularly academic, they honor the scriptures. And that's one thing I got from them as well is that no, that this is the word of God, and so when anyone has a bit of an arrogant attitude towards the Bible and says, well, it's a bit of a shambles here, or they didn't know what they were talking about there. And we just, I, I have, you know, I don't respect, <laughs> I don't respect them. God, if you honor the scriptures and you submit to the Bible, then uh, God will give you the insights. He will, you know, there's times when I prayed, well, please help me to understand this. And he's answered my prayer, you know? So um, submission first, submission to God and to the Word, and uh, that's the only way you're going to learn um, is to 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 yeah to honor the Word. So yeah. uh, mm. wow, that's incredible, man. That's uh, that's really really encouraging to hear. And I know um, just from everything I've read on uh, you know that website, the Opalus Institute. Um, you know, I, I just I, I love it, and I love that uh, Peter. Lightheart seems to have that uh, approach um, of bringing people together, and I know he's even he he wrote a book basically just honoring James P. Jordan. So I mean he ha- he has kind of this like, uh, I'm not surprised to hear what you had to say because it does seem like he is very charitable in in that regard, and um, and that's just really cool. Um, He's just quickly. He's he's kind of James B. Jordan's. The first time I listened to him, I was I was or read something by him. I was like, wow, this is so different. I'm really struggling to uh, like to understand how he thinks. But once you get used to it, he teaches you how to read the Bible. Mm-hmm. But the good that's James Jordan's a bit hard for a lot of people to swallow straight off. So Peter Lightheart seems to have made it his his mission to be sort of the gateway drug. <laughs> Mm. To, like the, the mediator, mm. he sort of, you know, takes James Jordan and sort of uh, makes it a bit more palatable because palatable. he's, mm. you know, like like sort of gets you, you know, it's like, well, I'm going to explain things the, in a way that you're used to hearing, but I'll be gradually introducing you to the way Jordan thinks. And because, you know, Jordan makes connections and you think, ah, how do you, and people, you know, um, accuse me of how did you get from there to there? And sometimes it's just 
I'm familiar enough with how this is constructed that it's just intuition. And uh, another friend of mine who's a Presbyterian, he's, you know, been to college and everything and seminary, and he's like, I can see the connection now that you've pointed it out, but how did you get there? And it's it's like making a connection when you're watching a movie. Ah, there's that again, you know. Um, so, but, yeah, that's what he's done. He's made, he's, he's uh, not watered it down, but sort of, you know, made it, presented it as a more palatable meal for people who are used to reading the regular sort of theology. And um, Peter Lighthart's a fantastic all-rounder. You know, it doesn't matter any anything, he's, he's he covers all sorts of bases, so he's a perfect person to do that, yeah. So um, that's that's been a good it's been a good project and I've seen it's it's working. There's a lot more people who have been exposed to it um, and are starting to think in those ways. I think there needs to be more guardrails. I think once people get into typology, they tend to make connections. That that's one thing that the structure that I've been looking at is the Bible has its own built-in guardrails. Yeah, you know the the sequence the the sequencing actually stops you from making connections that are not there that might be look plausible but i call them drive-by typology like oh mm. this matches that therefore there's a connection but um you know this the way the bible's structured actually um has its own you know there's sprockets like there's sprockets on the film and it it that sort of restrains the abuse of typology because it's got a bit of a a bad name so um mm. you know that's yeah that's an important point to make yeah no yeah it, it, it's a yeah it makes a lot of you know since you you put it like that with uh you know peter trying to in introduce uh people to james b jordan but for me like i just did an episode on typology i love typology and mm. to your point that was something that came up in the episode i mean we, i know that people can take it and, and go to yeah. all kinds of crazy places but i mean when i read james b jordan these are connections that i I've gotten better over the years in, in kind of making, mm -hmm. but I mean, you read that, yeah. you, some of your writings, like, whoa! I mean, just like, uh, yeah, it's, it's just like mind blowing, um, unbelievable the, the, the connections. Um, and uh, anyway, so hopefully we can bring some of that out today in this episode. Before we get into, yeah, you should start on you should start on the questions you sent me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, that's right. <laughs> We're getting, no, that's fine. We're easing our way in here. I don't know. Um, yeah. So uh, one, 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 one thing that I feel like is a, a huge strength to the Predator's view. I would actually think this, this is the biggest strength of the Predator's view uh, is the connection that we see between the book of Revelation and the Gospels and even the epistles. Because that's one big mm. mystery as far as someone that holds the future view. You see all this talk of this imminent return from, from Paul and Peter and John. And the question is like, where was it? And then you go back in, in the Gospels and you, Jesus like, man, and this can, this can kind of go over your head. But if you really look at what he's saying, he, he's constantly talking about this judgment that, that's coming that's, that's, yeah. that's, relevant to that generation's imminent it, it's it's like yeah uh, pressing so anyway um talk about the connection between revelation and uh, the gospels and the epistles yeah i think um the the main thing we need to understand is that the job of the prophet was basically god's repo man <laughs> you know like remember this contract you signed 
when you purchase the car and you're paying it off and you haven't been making the payments and now I'm here and I'm knocking on your door and I'm coming to take your car or your television or whatever you bought, you know. So the idea that the, when the prophets were sent, uh, they referred back to the law of Moses because that was what the people had had broken. They'd broken the covenant. So any of the prophets, whether it's, you know, the, the major prophets, the minor prophets, um, uh, and then when their job, or even, uh, you know, Pharaoh and Egypt became rich because of Joseph's faithfulness to God. And God used Joseph to bless Egypt. But then, like Adam, Egypt uh, took all of those blessings for and you know for for grant took took them for granted. Um, so Moses and Aaron come as God's prophets to repossess what Egypt had received from Joseph mm-hmm. and Joseph's ministry. So they were like, okay, um, you've you've turned from God. We're here to take back the blessings that you received. And you know that's so they they the repo men. So the plagues on Egypt were uh, a, an act of repossession, mm. and then um, you know then God's like, well, the inheritance will be given to to not to your son, but to my son Israel, and that's when they go and they will conquer Canaan. But also too, they plunder Egypt. So uh, when we get to the New Testament, Jesus is there's so many references to the prophets, um, and. The the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, not completely, but in a big way, was announcing this lawsuit against the rulers of Jerusalem. And that's why he talks about the law and the prophets as two legal witnesses. You had to have a minimum of two witnesses to condemn somebody, two or three witnesses. It's why Jesus said if if two or three are gathered together, in a matter of church discipline, there am I among you. Like, like you, you've gathered, we've got enough witnesses here. And if you're, you know, obviously walking in the spirit and being merciful and just, then your judgment is my judgment. You are my legal representatives. Uh, so, you know, revelation is you've got this lawsuit going on from uh, the ministry of Jesus through the ministry of the apostles the Jesus forgave the people for, ex, you know, crucifying him. But then when some repented, some didn't. And the ones who didn't, especially the rulers, then started massacring the church and they filled up their sins. In other words, their blood guilt got worse and worse and to the point where God was then totally justified in condemning them because they had not repented. And it's like, as Paul says, they... They hardened their hearts like Pharaoh, and it was the actual words of the prophets that hardened their hearts, as with Pharaoh. It was the words of Moses that gradually hardened his heart. And so Revelation is the, it's the, it's the culmination of that lawsuit where the witnesses have now condemned them. Sorry, the, 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 those who were accused had now condemned themselves by, by murdering the Christians, the apostles especially, and Revelation is the execution, the pronouncement of the sentence. You know, Jesus is, when he says, no more delay, uh, there had been a one generation delay, hmm. you know, the generation where he was on the cross and he could have had the city and the sanctuary destroyed then and there, as it says in Daniel, but 
Daniel, I don't believe Daniel sees that delay. He sees the death of the Messiah and the destruction of the city and the sanctuary as being almost immediate. Mm. But as in the wilderness, there's a 40-year delay. And it's like, because and as Peter, I think it's Peter who says, well, maybe it's Paul, quotes Isaiah saying, he didn't cut us off like Sodom and Gomorrah. He gave us another chance. Mm. And the old generation was going to be, mm. you know, was going to die in the wilderness. And that's what Hebrews says. Hebrews constantly referring to the wilderness years. So you've got this 40-year gap. And by and then basically the same thing with, with the crucifixion of Christ is repeated, but now it's the massacre of the of the first fruits church. And so you've got Jesus as the head and the church as the body of the sacrifice. And then the end comes. So Revelation is a it's like heaven's view of and in and presented as as a sacrificial liturgy um, of the destruction of Jerusalem. But going back to what we were talking about before, there are preterists who see Revelation as being all about the Jewish war. What I notice with James Jordan, which is a major difference, is he sees Revelation as describing the spiritual war mm. of the apostles against the Jewish rulers. So that actually changes how you interpret mm. all of the details in the centre of the book. Uh, it's not the Jewish war doesn't come in until the the judgment towards the end of the book of the the great city. So uh, it's a spiritual war, and of course, when you then go back and look at you know Ephesians and the spiritual armor, and uh, you know Jesus saying to Peter, "Feed my sheep," and then you're go you're going to be martyred, mm -hmm. and then you realize that he's asking Peter to feed his sheep so that they can go to slaughter. Yeah, like. <laughs> like this is big stuff, you know. But yeah. I think yeah. So what you're saying is Revelation is so intimately integrated with the rest of the New Testament as the culmination of the of the ministry. And what it does is it gets the old order of animal sacrifices and the temple. Um, it brings an end to the old era completely, and that's why Jesus said the blood of Abel will be finally avenged along with all the prophets. That entire era of substitutionary sacrifices was coming to an end and Revelation shows that God now accepts, it was accepting human sacrifices not to atone for sin, but um, the martyrs were a testimony that um, as a, a foundation of the new era where uh, God accepts us in Christ rather than through animal sacrifices. So that's why it's it's such a Jewish book, mm. you know. There's ever as Beale picks up, you know, there's mm -hmm. he he does make these connections. Yep. But yeah, the reason is it was all fulfilled by AD seventy. It, it does give us give us a glimpse of this current age at the end of the book, but um, it's um, the two witnesses in Revelation are Moses and Elijah. It's the Law and the Prophets, um, but it's their testimony in the mouths of the apostles. Mm -hmm. So once again, it's 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 a reference to the law. So uh, at the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah are there as mm -hmm. the, the law and the prophets. The law is don't do this, and the prophet is look what you did. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? You know, I mean that's I mean our parents do that. You know, it's just that, mm -hmm. so there's the second witness. Um, mm -hmm. And so when when the father says this is you know this is my my beloved son, but then when he says hear him. He's actually giving the, the authority of Moses and Elijah to Jesus, mm. and that's why Revelation talks about the testimony of Jesus. He's got all of their power, mm. um, and then all of the curses of the law 
after a, a generation of threshing and gradually converting a lot of Jews and Gentiles as well. And then Jesus said, you know, leave when you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, leave. So basically the only people that were left when Titus surrounded the city during Passover were those who had rejected the testimony of Christ and the testimony of Paul. They gathered from all from afar off across the empire into the city and they were trapped. And, you know, their table became a snare. Passover became a trap. Um, and, you know, then, then, then you get into Josephus and read what happened. Yeah, but yeah. to understand it, we it's yeah, it's Moses is the key to to Revelation, and uh, if once we understand that, I think most people do know they they're familiar enough with the with the books of Moses and with the Old Testament. Um, but when you when you're told this is the connection you have to make, all of a sudden that starts to make sense. Mm, yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, when I, when I first saw the the title and cover of the book with Moses, I thought. I've never heard this before. What is this all about? Um, so it definitely piqued my interest. Um, that worked then. Good. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. To it, it totally. Did. I love the. Cover. I do. I do some. Mar I do some marketing as well. You know. So I do tend to. Um, I do tend to um, try and you know provoke <laughs> a bit. Yeah, it did. I mean, I've I've just uh I've never heard from that angle. So you it, it worked for me at, at least. Um, but uh. Yeah, no, it's, it's just such an incredible way to, to read uh, the book of Revelation. And I've always said, mm -hmm. you know, the reason why I was so attracted to the Preterist views because it it just seems naturally that this would be the most natural way to read it. It was written, you have even the seven local churches right there. It's written to yeah. a certain set of people at a certain time. They were supposed to soon take place. I mean, those are all like huge strengths that I think the Preterist view has. Um, I just don't like the whole, I've got you know, Jewish wars, I fly to Josephus in one hand and the book of Revelation in the other. And I'm just here, yeah. like, you know, making connections like that. That's the only way I've heard explain it to me. And that's what I, I just like, mm. no. But uh, anyway, so we're, we're going to get into it. Um, you already mentioned um, John 316 taking a a pattern through the Pentateuch. And so for anyone that's familiar with uh, chiasms, uh, you really take that um to like a a whole new level yeah. and you're able to take um i mean yeah. once you kind of study chiasms when i first kind of started to get into it it's like okay i see this okay i see that but um you don't realize just how much it really is just a a pattern for how the entire it's really honestly apologetic yeah. for um for the uh, inerrancy of scripture mm -hmm. seeing because when you take a look at all these different authors authors over time and they're writing in the same structure it it's 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 pretty incredible to think wow um and james b jordan was one of those that, that pointed out that uh, a lot of these books are actually penned uh, they're actually like the authors are just scribes they're just told to write down um you know what they what they mm. saw or what, what, what was said to them I, didn't, I never really realized that but any for anyone that's not familiar with a what a chiasm is um because i know your bible matrix book really lays that out and and that's kind of the beginning of you know how you lay out revelation as having a chiastic structure can you walk us through mm. the shape of, of revelation uh and this uh you know how it fits with the bible matrix and and has a chiastic yeah. structure I think um, uh, the first thing, if, if someone doesn't know what a chiasm is, it's basically that the text has a symmetrical shape. So, um, and a, a lot of a lot of it seems to be some of these devices are being used more and more by 
modern movie writers um, where, you know, it, where it starts is where it ends, you know, mm-hmm. like you uh, or it's like in The Hobbit, it's a there and back again, you know, you or your day at work where you leave home, you go to work and you come back again. So it's this symmetrical shape and if it's got seven steps, it'll be A, B, C, D, C, B, A. Uh, but there's a progression as well. So just like when you go to work and you come back again, you're not the same person. You've earned some money, you've learned some things, you've changed the world in some way. And uh, as as in any story, you know, it's like the hero's journey in that sense. Um, I think the the most chiasms that people pick up are merely symmetry. You know, there's there's various authors who've done it over the years, like with this, the 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 Noah narrative, which uh, works its way towards a cent towards a center point where it says, "And God remembered Noah," and then the rest of the story basically reverses everything that's happened previously in some way. Yeah. Um, and when when you see it laid out, you say, "Oh, okay, that's how this is structured." And the difference with the, this this method in ancient literature is that the point of the story is in the middle, not at the end. And if you can identify the center, which is not that difficult, then you know what the the author's point is, and the fact that in this point it was God remembered Noah. The difference with the Bible matrix stuff is um, it's not just about symmetry, where you're just matching the 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 the, the mirrored points of each step to kind of make sense of the symmetry. It, what I call these quantum chiasms because <laughs> they're entangled, you know, like when you see that Jesus works through the books of Moses in John 3, 16, you know, for God so loved the world, Genesis, he gave his son, Passover, Exodus, whoever believes in him, Leviticus is about being a living sacrifice, will not perish, the judgment of Israel in the book of Numbers, but have everlasting life and the promises in Deuteronomy. And so he's saying, I've come to fulfill the law. And and I'm and I'm taking it to the next level, you know. Um, this is now not just the inheritance of Canaan. This is now eternal life. Uh, and because the you know the Jews memorized scripture, their whole their whole year with their fe- feasts was the same pattern. They had this built in, so they got the references. Um, but the quantum chiasm means that if you're that in this case, we see John three sixteen is kind of quantum entangled with the Pentateuch. And they're they're interpreting each other. And you see the same pattern in Genesis chapters 1 to 5, which is the legal structure of God's covenants. But what it means is that every part of the Bible is using some version of the same structure, which means they're all talking to each other at once, like the number of connections you can make. And as we're talking about Revelation, Revelation actually works through the sevenfold pattern. um, And... It's it's recapitulating the first seven books of the Bible, which take us to the conquest of of Canaan, but this is a spiritual conquest, and so uh, it 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 starts with the vision of Jesus, who is Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he's surrounded by these lampstands, which and the lampstands were made to look like trees. Mm-hmm. So he's he's the high priest who's trimming the wicks on the lamps to make them shine brighter as he purifies the pastors of these churches and gets them as his representatives to discipline and to encourage the churches. Um, And then Exodus is the burning bush, and that's when we actually have the letters to the seven churches, which are a Gentile menorah, which is another joke. Um, You know, that's that's absolutely shocking, really. Mm -hmm. Um, Leviticus is the ascension of Christ as the lamb, 
and that's where he we see Christ ascend to heaven and he's the the whole world's about to come to an end but then he opens the scroll which is the new covenant and the blessings and the curses come out to deal with the old order and that's that leads to uh, numbers which is kind of the wilderness time for the church and there's spiritual war that's going on um then we have Deuteronomy, which is the re re repeating the law to a new generation. And here we have the trumpets, which is a battle between the true church and the false church described in Old Testament imagery. So, imagery. so it's a spiritual war where the imagery is talking about ancient physical battles, but it's, um, and there's lots of, there's lots of jokes. And it's basically Jacob versus Esau because it's the church versus the Herods who were descended from Esau, and it's like they're struggling in the womb to see who's going to be the firstborn, who's going to be, who's going to get the inheritance. That's what it's about. So there's mm -hmm. lots of Jacob and Esau jokes there, or mentions. Um, and then you have Joshua and you have the great city and the harlot, but it's not faithful Rahab. It's, you know, <laughs> the false religion, the temple that's, that's now uh, drinking the blood of the saints, and that's a reference to Numbers 5 with the, woman with the cup, but this is the Joshua step. So there's lots of Jericho imagery. And then finally you have the book of Judges, and that's why you see the saints now enthroned and um, they have authority to judge between good and evil, which was always the point with 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 Adam and Eve. Um, so it's, it's actually describing the time from the ascension of Christ through the apostolic witness up until the, the judgment of Jerusalem and then with a glimpse of this current age at the end. And it follows the basic legal structure of God's covenants as well. So uh, once you see that it's, and it, the book of Hebrews makes all the same connections. And so, you know, if you read Hebrews and then come to Revelation and go, ah, oh, okay, now we're actually seeing this in action. Mm -hmm. um, but it's described in terms of the operations of the temple. I mean, it works, that sevenfold pattern also works through Israel's annual feasts and the, mm -hmm. the judgment of the city aligns with the Day of Atonement. So instead of seven sprinklings of blood, you have the, mm. the blood of the animals now being rejected and tipped out in judgment in seven, mm. seven bowls. Wow. So um, it's, it's, it's the Old Testament religion being uh, rejected now because Christ has made it obsolete. It was ready to vanish away, and now we're shown it actually being destroyed. And, uh, you know, that's the, so the point of the book is this is, it's the end of the law. It's the end of the circumcision and the law. These things were made legally redundant at the cross, and now they're being physically removed. Mm. Uh, so, you know, it removes that, the, the wall of partition that, that Paul talks about. It's actually finally being demolished. Hmm. Um, but then, you know, yeah, you can make, you start to make sense of all the details, but there's some fantastic stuff in there that's so subtle and so funny in some, like the comedy roast, like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's like a political cartoon where hmm. it's so funny, but it's so cutting. And, hmm. and I'm working through Isaiah at the moment. He uses all the same sort of devices and structures and he's, the prophets ridicule those who should know better. You know, there's a place yeah. for ridicule. But you ridicule those who know better and are not doing what God said, um, and so they use they make they make these terrifying jokes, you know. Um, 
So Revelation is actually pretty funny. Um, one thing I will point out just to illustrate that is uh, Revelation starts with the seven churches who comprise a Gentile lampstand, the, the, the menorah in the tabernacle. And in the, in the book of Daniel, you have the lampstand shining the light on the wall, and that's the light by which Belshazzar sees the handwriting condemning him as a lightweight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. you've been weighed in the you've been weighed in the balances, and it's you know you're not you're not you're not glorious and heavy like gold. You're just a bunch of you know chaff basically. Mm. Um, you're a lightweight. That's why you're ruling with a heavy hand. You know, but in Revelation, in, you've got this Gentile lampstand. And then you have Babylon, which is Jerusalem. So it's reversed. You've you've now got a Gentile lampstand shining the light, and the rest of the book is the writing on the wall for a Jewish spiritual Babylon, also Egypt and Sodom. And wow. that's part of that's the joke. Like yeah, it's as well. Yeah, it's a bit like um, you know, Elisha healed the spring that was causing miscarriages in Jericho. I mean, Jericho is the city where all flesh was cut off under Joshua. Mm. And then he goes, and then the the children of Bethel, where one of the golden calves was situated, are ridiculing God's prophet, and he sets the bears on them. So he's basically rendering Israel barren while the the believing Gentiles are, are, are made fruitful. And yeah. there's this this mm. this reversal. So the irony is, uh, yeah, it's pretty full on. But you you've got to have the. It's a pity that more Jews don't read the New Testament. <laughs> you know, they would they would get the jokes. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. a few. There's a few that do. Yeah, yeah, mm, yeah. Mm. That's that's wild. Um, awesome. So I think I want to probably start getting into more of like the the nitty gritty um, uh, details and kind of work our way through the book uh but i'll start at the 24 elders uh that was something that was um honestly shocking when i read it um but i i, I had heard similar things uh so it it uh it was something i, I sort of grasped onto but uh can you tell us who the 24 elders are um and then what's the connection between those and uh the elders and the angels uh, that told the disciples um, after Christ's ascension, sorry, what the angels? I can't remember. Was. I can't remember what I wrote, and I might have oh, actually goodness. changed my mind since I oh. wrote that. Oh, so okay. you tell me, and I'll, then I'll, I'll respond. Because <laughs> I think yep. Jordan's position is that they're. I think Jordan says that they are angels. Mm. Um, yeah, but and and that they gradually they were because the saints were now being now that Christ had ascended to heaven, people could ascend to heaven. And the angels were basically casting down their crowns as they left one by one. Yeah. And their, their, their various judgments take place through the book. Um, and then at the end, the saints come in and take the take on the offices that the, the angels as servants had. It's now being given to sons. Um, yeah. That could still be true, um, but I... It seems to me that the the Bible never you never see a crowned angel because angels are servants mm-hmm. and only only sons wear crowns. Like there's this whole thing between servants and sons. Even Christ became a servant that then he might be glorified as a son. Paul says that when they're children, you can't tell the difference between the servants' children and the heirs of the household. But as they mature, the inheritance for the, is for the sons. So 
look, they probably they're they're angels in the sense that um, they're still uh, acting as servants. I tend to think now that they were actually the um, possibly the the covenant heads of the old covenant, like people like uh, mm. Enoch Enoch who was taken, um, some of these other you know El- Elijah. Um, I I'm not sure, but the idea is in a sense they're. They're holy warriors. Jordan does make the connection that when a, a Nazarite who didn't who didn't cut his or her hair, could be male or female, um, when they finished their vow of holy war, they would cut off their hair, as Paul did. He took the vow for his spiritual warfare, and then they would offer it, and I think it would be burnt up. I think that's what they did. Mm-hmm. So the idea of them casting their crowns was giving their glory to God so in some sense, these these are holy warriors, which they could just be angels uh, who were sit, 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 taking that role until mankind was matured and ready and Christ had opened the door for them to enter God's court in heaven. But I'm starting to think that they were actually um, a lot of the sort of the priest-king type roles from the Old Testament, like like sort of uh, God just... Just, just plucking the best ones, you know, like like Job and some of the others uh, who were who were the, the the heads of each of each age. Mm. So it could be either, but the the point that mm. their job was now done, and that they were giving their legacy now to the the, the martyrs and and the apostles and the, the the saints because the way was now open. That stands. That's the idea. That well, our job is now done. We, yeah. Our war is over. We are offering up our glorious hair, our crown, and uh, to God because our battle is finished, and now it's it's been given to the new generation. And the the whole the way the Bible works in harvest cycles, which is the same chiastic pattern, is that each one each each cycle leaves an, a legacy for the next one to pick up and take on, like a baton in a race. But the, 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 each cycle expands God's territory and the maturity of mankind to discern between good and evil. Um, we still see that now where, you know, we had, for instance, we had uh, the challenge of Marxism as a counterfeit Christianity. Yes, we'll give you heaven on earth without, but, you know, give us control, um, which is the, the, the lie in the Garden of Eden, you know. Mm-hmm. And now we have neo-Marxism, which people say, well, this isn't Marxism. It's like, yeah, it's a new spin because God wants us to discern. You know, here's the, here's the latest lie from the devil. You're going to have to think. You're going to have to take what God said in the past but apply it in a new situation. And, and you know, he's not going to spell it out for you. He didn't do that for Adam. He didn't do it for anybody. It's like... Take what I said, but you're going to have to use your brain. You're going to have to believe what I said, but then also do some thinking and develop some wisdom to discern between good and evil because evil often looks like good and good often looks like evil. Mm. If God says, you know, you're going to have to die uh, or at least, you know, deny yourself, that seems bad. But Jesus looked beyond that sacrifice to the glory that was set before him, and that's what we have to do. We have to see that you know, there's 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 a time of humiliation and humbling, and then the glory comes. Whereas Satan says, "Hey, I have the glory. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world." Jesus is like, "I'll have them, but not from you." You yeah. know, and I, I think then Satan went and offered it to the Herods, and they said, "Yes," you know, mm. um, yeah, which it seems that they did. Mm. So um, I think uh, 
this pattern that's that's that was these 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 elders were that their their time was done their the last step of the covenant pattern is about covenant succession making making uh, arrangements for the next generation you see that in all the old testament stories where it'll end with a genealogy or with talking about the person's children or whatever um paul does the same thing in the new testament with his epistles but he ends with greetings to the saints it's not to physical children he's talking to sons of god mm. so the, the 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 emphasis has shifted from physical offspring to spiritual offspring like paul and timothy who were father and son in a, in spiritual sense Mm. Um, so the 24 elders, you know, they could just be angels. Um, the angels of the churches were actually pastors, which is an indication that, you know, we're now where if you have the word angel, but you put EV on the beginning, <laughs> mm-hmm. evangel, you know, mm-hmm. like where the, the, the ministry is now being passed on to God's sons. Um, you actually see that in, in, uh, Exodus where, it's an angel that's bearing the sword against Egypt at the Passover. But when you get to Jericho, who's bearing the sword? It's not it's not angels from heaven. It's God's people. The hand the sword is now in the hand of Joshua. Mm-hmm. And God's people are the angels now. So it's the same, it's the same thing about preparing, using angels at the start and then preparing human beings for the role and then giving them the sword. And that's what Adam was supposed to do. God cut Adam's flesh, but then Adam was supposed to crush the serpent, and then God would have given him the flaming sword. Mm-hmm. All right, now you're in charge. You're, you're, you know, you're the Joshua, in a sense. You're going to enter the land from the garden, and you're going to subdue the world. Um, but he blew it. So the sword, he was still under the sword. So, um, you know, that's that's the pattern. So I think... the. The legacy idea is still there, but I just I just don't see angels wearing crowns. You know, yeah. I think these yeah. these I think these guys were sort of the preliminary. You know, they were God's court in heaven, and they'd been they were human. In, but it doesn't say so. We just have to, you know, sure. Sure. do do our best. Yeah, but they yeah, well, but the, yeah. the point the point is that their job was done. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's, either way, it still works as. There's the changing of the guard, and I, I had heard uh, an argument for why the elders had to be human as well. Uh, so, seeing the connection between the elders mentioned earlier in the book, in chapters either four and five, and then then in, in chapter twenty, I thought, oh, okay, mm. you know, I, I, I can yeah. see, I can see how we have the, you know, cons- the, the the new covenant now. Is consummated, and we have the sort of changing of the guard. I thought that was really beautiful. Um, yeah, just quickly, it's a bit like Solomon, where it goes into great detail to talk about uh, his the beginning of his reign, but then he installs a new government. You mm. know, like he deals he deals with all of the old his father's enemies and either mm. has them killed or exiled, which mm. is what's happening in Revelation with the Jewish rulers. And then we see the new broom. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the new government. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. That's crazy. Um, okay, the 144,000, who are they? Um, do you want their names? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think the the reference, the, the reason that they're listed, you know, tribe by tribe, it's a, it's a reference to Numbers 7, where you have each of the tribes bringing their 
offerings to the tabernacle, you know, lots of vessels and basins and whatever, and it lists it all in the, and it's so repetitious. But the whole point is it's it's architecture and it's it's listing them out. But the difference with um uh with this, and this begins the sort of the numbers section of the book, um, or at least leads up to it, is that these these Jewish saints are the first fruits to God and the Lamb, and they are they are now the vessels. You know, they're not we're not bringing we're not bringing replicas of of human we're not bringing substitutes for human beings like animals and vessels and all sorts of stuff in the tabernacle um the the furniture in the tabernacle all all represented people you know the table was the priest the lampstand was the king the incense altar was the prophet um and because people could not serve in god's presence in that way so these things were like promises here's the offices that you're going to inherit represented as furniture um, but now in Revelation, we actually have that furniture being fulfilled. Mm. And that's why it starts with Jesus being described as a human tabernacle. You know, he's got the lampstand in his right hand, seven stars. Um, so, the, you know, the, all these things that were um, architecture is being fulfilled in human, in human society. It's always the architecture is the blueprint. Now I'm going to measure that out in people. And that's why the New, New Jerusalem is a it's not a physical city it's a city made of people but this is the architectural blueprint this is what it represents to god as as architecture uh so the 144,000 jesus has opened he's broken the seals on the scroll and only he was worthy to do that to open it and uh so just as moses ascended and received the tablets which is like the, the law, you know, our hearts are made of stone, so we get these stony tablets and we have to, it has to be engraved in us. Um, Jesus' scroll is, I'm assuming it's vellum, and vellum was made from lamb skin and you couldn't use it if it had spots, all right, because then you, it would, it would uh, obscure what was written on it. You could misinterpret it, whatever. So... It, it, Jesus himself was the lamb without spot. He was without blemish. The the Levite priests could not be physically imperfect in any way. That's why Jesus said, well, if your heart's not right with God, what good is your physical perfection? Pluck out an eye, cut off a hand, cut off a leg. You know, like it's better that you be physically imperfect and have your heart perfect with God. So it's all referring to the law. You know, he's not, that, that's what, that was the joke. It's not like, yeah, go and do this. It's like you're concerned. Yeah. You're concerned with the pictures and not with the reality. Um, uh, so here he opens a scroll, which is the it's the new covenant equivalent of the tablets of the law, but now it's the law written on flesh. And so he opens this scroll, breaks the seals, but then after that happens, 144,000 are sealed, and what it does is that turns each of them into little books. They are now little versions of this new covenant message, and what happens? Why why do you seal a scroll? You do it so that no one's going to uh, basically read it until it gets to its destination. It's a protection. It's like the seal on Christ's tomb. You know, you put a wax seal so that they know if anybody's read it. Uh, and so these saints were sealed, and when the seal was broken was when the, when their message reached its destination when the seal was broken, they were killed. 
they were their message that as the word the Greek word for martyr and witness is the same. You know, it's it's martyroi. They were the martyrs, but it means a witness. So basically, in their deaths, they were proclaiming the word, and their seals were broken as they died. Mm. So wow, but the yeah. So basically, the Lamb has ascended to heaven. And these 144,000, um, as it says in Leviticus, the ascension offering, choose the, the a son of the herd, the best of the flock. Mm. You know, Job was chosen from among the other priest kings, not angels. We'll get into that another time, I guess. But he was there with the, all the other guys who offered sacrifices, and God chose him as the as the one who was blameless and perfect. So, And it's like Jesus at his baptism. All these people came for baptism, and the Father selected the one without blemish. This is my son, the son of the herd. He's the one that was promised and he's without blemish. And now I choose him for sacrifice and he goes into the wilderness. And so these 144,000, Jesus is the head. He's ascended. They always offered the head of the sacrifice first in Leviticus 1 of the ascension offering. And then they would wash the body, the legs, etc., would be washed. And then that would be offered. Um, so head and body. So these 144,000 are the body. Makes me cry just thinking about it, you know, like, yeah. So, but it was prefigured in the book of Numbers where they were supposed to be the pure body. Moses is the head. They'd been baptized into Moses as the head without blemish. And now they were making their offerings. But then, of course, they blew it. You know, they were, they were tested and hence the references to Balaam and the false prophet you know mm-hmm. that the, this this uh the 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 temptation for the church was to go back to the old way mm. and so this false prophet was like well um the 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 Israel was tempted with idolatry and spirit and, and physical adultery but of course then the great harlot is Jerusalem herself you know the pharisees condemned the tax collectors and the prostitutes but um, Jerusalem was the biggest tax collector and the biggest prostitute, you know, and in a in a, a collective sense. So there's the hypocrisy. So, um, so these were the Jewish believers who were in Hebrews. It says you're being you're being blackmailed to go back to the old order. You know, um, when when Peter said um, uh, baptism now saves you, baptism now delivers you. These these saints were being blackmailed to go back to Judaism because they weren't allowed to keep the Jewish rites. They were banned from mm-hmm. the temple. And he's saying, well, your, your, your baptism replaces that. Mm. You, you're, you're no longer beholden to them. And also the judgment's coming on Jerusalem like a flood. You'll be like Noah, delivered from the old order entirely. So in a sense, the fact that they have expelled you is a blessing for you. And then, he, then I get in a bit of trouble for this one. When he talks about um, the spirits in prison, he's referring to the bit in uh, where Jesus talks to those saints who have been slain and their blood, they're under the altar, like blood splashed on the sides of the altar. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he says, they're like, when are you going to avenge us? And he says, just a little longer, just one more generation. And until yeah. these New Testament saints are massacred as well, as a second witness against these persecutors. Um, and I think he's, Peter says, um, what was it in the, later he said he talks to pre, Jesus preaching to the dead, I think, is it? Anyway, there's another yeah, reference yeah, to yeah. it. But Peter, yeah. Peter's referring to Revelation 
Um, and to Jesus telling these martyrs, um, and they're like John the Baptist in prison because they're questioning him. John is like, are you the one? Like, what are you, what, what's holding you back? Why are we still waiting? Why am I in prison? Right. Yeah. And so these, mm. these saints are there and they're being told it's coming. Just hold on a little bit. Here's your white robe, which mm. corresponds to, to baptism and investiture. Here's your white robe. And then later you see them on the crystal sea and they've been, you know, you've got the old yeah, Testament yeah, yeah. martyrs and the new Testament martyrs who were the 144,000 first fruits to God and the lamb. And that helps to fulfill the law because now the head has been offered and the body has been offered. Goodness. And that's, yeah. So that's it. It's Leviticus. It's, it's Levitical. Um, Jordan points out too, that the, for Passover, you could have a, a, a sheep or a goat. It could be a lamb or a kid. Mm. You could have a smooth Jacob or a hairy Esau. Mm. You know, it was, didn't matter which one it was because they're both sons of Jacob, but, the first fruits had to be a lamb. And so in, mm. in, in Revelation, people point out that the ascension of the lamb is Passover. No, it's not Passover. It's first fruits. Christ is the first fruits. But then the the, the 144,000 become the kind of corporate first fruits. You know, you plant one seed, you get a harvest. Well, he died, ascended to heaven, and now there's this huge harvest of, and that's when you see Jesus with a sickle harvesting them man, oh man. later on <laughs> <That's so wild. laughs> like it's <laughs> yeah well that's it you know people think jesus the angel with the sickle is is killing the bad guys and jordan's no he's like no no this is grain and grapes like he's harvesting them as bread and wine yeah like their flesh yeah. and blood is just being offered you know man. i mean and so when you when you partake of the lord's supper you become a human lamb it's not like the Lord's Supper is not like Passover. It takes it to the next level. Mm. When, you know, Jesus, they had the Passover meal mm. as Passover. And then when he took the bread and wine, this was like first fruits. And he's like, okay, now you guys are the lambs. You know, Peter, feed my sheep with the word. And then the, the harvest of that is the 144,000. That is crazy. That's wild. That is so wild. Um mm. That's wild, but I mean, man, when you hear that, it's hard to, uh, it's hard not to see it. I mean, if you, you know, if you're familiar, uh, like I said earlier with the Old Testament, it's like, wow, that's it. Um, yeah, but, the, but it. The, the thing is, because it happened then, and we see it happen in the first century, we realize that Jesus conquered the powers in his death and rose again. The massacre of those saints in the first century is what led to the destruction of their persecutors in Jerusalem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were the, the, like the Jews are the big, they're the bad guys in the first century. Those particular Jews, not Jews in general, those guys, a lot yeah. of the Jews believed these, these were the ones who were, you know, trying, it was cancel culture, trying to cancel the church. That's what Matthew mm. 25 sheep and goats judgments about, you know, those who followed, um, those who believed in Jesus and followed Jacob, smooth Jacob, the sheep, and those who followed the Herods who were from Esau, and they're the hairy goats, okay? So yeah. this was like a Passover, and it's like, okay, I'm going to separate those of you who who helped the, my dis, my disciples, the least of my brethren, and and gave them supplies and, and hospitality and whatever, and here's you guys who were practicing first century cancel culture, 
by denying them any support and trying to get rid of them, and you guys are going to be cut out of history. And the same thing happens in the, in the exile, you know, where you had um, all of Israel's enemies, like, you know, the, the Philistines and all the other little kingdoms around the place, and the Babylonian flood flood wiped them all out like like a flood, but only Israel rose again as the land, and all of those other kingdoms were disempowered. Okay, so you had the same thing where they were cut yeah. out of history. They were yeah. still around as individuals. Sure. You know, you had them taunting Nehemiah and others when they were trying to rebuild, but their kingdoms were gone. They yeah. were were finished. So you have the same thing in the first century where this new, this Roman, um, uh, the Jewish war basically kind of wiped out all of these old, old powers, including the Herods, and but only the church would rise again. As, as the new, and that, you know, they would go on. But the point I was going to make there was that the massacre of those saints led to the end of their persecutors, but that was just the next shockwave. And then you have the conquest of Rome, and it just keeps, it's it's like a shockwave or sound waves from the cross. And so when people yeah. talk about post-millennialism as being triumphalistic, and that's the temptation, mm-hmm. and Jordan points out, he says, he talks about post-millennial suffering where Jesus conquered in his death, those first fruit saints, the 144,000 conquered in their deaths and overcame and then God judged their persecutors and then it just keeps going. So wherever the, the world is being conquered by suffering by the and, and testimony, not just it's, it's, it's ups and downs. You know, we have times where the church is humbled and persecuted and then God gives us authority and then we get a bit corrupt and a bit complacent and God humbles us again. And so the world is being Christianized like growth rings and it's ups and downs, ups and downs, and that's the pattern. So when we read Revelation, it doesn't become irrelevant by all being mostly, at least in the first century, mm-hmm. it actually makes it more relevant. It gives us yeah, the key. Absolutely to how the gospel conquers the world. Mm-hmm. So that was the next level. But also, too, you've got to remember that the the Herods and, and Jerusalem, it was they were like the the egg, the eggshell. And this was the new chick breaking out of the eggshell. And that that like the old mm. the old system had to go. Yeah. It was holding it back. They were trying mm. to um I mean imagine, you know, like you're in control of the temple, you've got a hold on everybody, you're making money on the sacrifices, and then there's people saying, oh no, no, those are now obsolete. We have Jesus sacrifice. What are you going to do? <laughs> like you want to stay in business, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You, you say we've got to we've got to get rid of this guy. Yeah, you know he's he's mm. he's uh he's he's taking our trade from us. You know, sure, yeah, um, yeah. Excellent. Anyway, so that's 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 an extended explanation of the hundred and forty four thousand. But uh, you know they were they were the next harvest. Yeah, yeah. no, I so. Yeah, I love that uh, explanation. I love that because it really um, you, you didn't give us the simple answer. You you put it in context in, in in really and truly. If if this is true, this puts such a bow on the end of the New Testament. And if this mm. you know if, like without this interpretation, there's so much that's absent that seemed to be very, very important to Jesus and his ministry. And we don't ever see mm-hmm. any of that addressed. If this if this is something that's in the future, where is all this 
that Jesus was yeah. talking about that seemed to be so important um, to his ministry and even a lot of the epistles as well. So, I mean, that's why um, I love this interpretation so much. I like how James B. Jordan said this is really is the vindication of Jesus Christ. We see it yes. in, in this book. It's like, yes, there yeah. it is. Um, wow. Anyway. Yeah. Um, but also cool. on vindication, you know, he said he would rise from the dead and he was vindicated. And he said that the city would be destroyed. And this is the next yeah. layer of vindication. And so where you where I deal with um full preterists who say, Oh no, it's all finished now, the Bible's completely fulfilled, there's no final judgment, they take it to the extreme. But my point is that Jesus' first vindication was a garden vindication. He he was in a garden mm -hmm. tomb. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and that's Adam in the garden. And then the next vindication was against was against Cain who killed Abel. That's why Jesus said the blood of Abel is going to be avenged. This is the murderous brother in the land, and that was the Herods who were from Esau. Mm. And so what, what remains now? Garden, land, world. Yeah, you know, like the land. same pattern yeah. is found everywhere. Mm. You know, Jesus was taken, was arrested, taken to the high priest, garden, holy of holies. Then he was sent off to Herod, land. Mm -hmm. Then he was hauled before Pilate, Rome, world. The same pattern. Paul goes through the same process, um, but mm. yeah. So the the point is that there is a revelation does describe the final judgment at the end. It begins in a garden with Jesus amongst the trees, and then the bulk of the book is about the conquest of the land, and then we have a glimpse of the final judgment and the end and the mm. final resurrection of uh, in the of the world, um, and that's the tabernacle. You know, you had the most holy places, the garden. The holy places, the land, and the court of the Gentiles is the world. So our current era of history is the conquest of the court of the Gentiles, and then there'll be a judgment at the end of that. So it's it's this yeah, like I said, it's this gradual expansion of of um, of Jesus' claimed territory and conquest of it through the the suffering and testimony of the saints. Hmm. Well, that's awesome. Uh, so you'll I think you'll only be able to just kind of give us a big picture overview uh which is why i'm kind of asking you uh to give us the seals trumpets and bowls in one question um we don't have the time to to go through each um but can you give us just like an overview uh, of seals um trumpets and bowls just from a you know fifty thousand feet up yeah um well it's it's working through the feasts um, opening this, the, the, the central feast in Leviticus 23, it lists seven feasts. The first one is the Sabbath, and that's a weekly feast, and that's like Adam at, in the creation week. But that sets the pattern for the whole thing. So once again, you, you've got like a head and a body. You've got seven days, but then you've got this sevenfold pattern through the year, um, obviously divided into uh, spring and, and, and autumn. Um, but it's still seven. And the central one is Pentecost. And that's uh, that's the harvest festival. Um, and so the seals are where it's also God gave the law to Israel at the first Pentecost. And God gave the spirit to Israel at the last Pentecost. So they're bookends. Mm. Okay. The law is external. It's words coming to us like parents telling their kids what to do. The last Pentecost is the law has now been internalized. We have the law of the spirit. 
And mm. so what was ne- what was then external coming to, to us to change us is now internal and now we're mature. We are now self-governing by because we've submitted to God. Um, it's it's adulthood in that sense where, okay, now you've, uh, you know, that's a, it's kind of like Adam, you know, God came to the garden, returned. In, it doesn't, it's not in the cool of the day. It's the wind of the day. This was to be Adam's Pentecost, a mighty rushing wind. Where are you? Whereas the saints in, at Pentecost in, in Acts were waiting for God. Adam was hiding. <laughs> so he missed out on his Pentecost. He didn't get the Holy Spirit, you know. Mm. Um, he was supposed to have obeyed God and waited, and then he would have received the Spirit and then would have been God's prophet. But he, we never hear from him ever again. Like No words are recorded. So in Revelation, the seals correspond to the, So you've got the, the lamb ascends as first fruits, and then you have the seals which correspond to the day of Pentecost, and in the tabernacle, that corresponds to the seven lights on the lampstand. So um, the, the, the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost where they're human lampstands. Mm. Um, so the seven seals are basically the legal declaration of what's coming. Mm. And the first, the, the, first the, the horsemen are the gospel. In a sense, you could say they're like they end up being the four gospels where the first one is light, a white horse brings the message, then that divides the people where Jesus said, you know, father versus yep. son, mother versus daughter, etc. Um, that causes division between the natural people who are still natural and those who are converted um, and who have the spirit. Then you have the old order, like bread being starved away and becoming like a famine. And then the oil and the wine are the new covenant. And they, those are things are kingly and that's not harmed. So it's basically mm-hmm. saying that, I'm like John said, I must decrease, he must increase. The old covenant was wasting away. Um, Zechariah describes it as people's eyes and tongues, which is, you know, the 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 vision and the prophecy of the old covenant is 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 corrupt, you mm. know. Um mm. Herod himself has become like old manna filled with maggots because he's you just you you kept it for too long, you know. So he's eaten with worms. You know, he's not the bread of life. He's the bread of mm. death, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, so that's the that's the seals are the are the like Moses bringing the tablets. And, of course, the joke is when Moses went up the mountain, um, they said, where is he? Well, Aaron, make a golden calf. Well, here, Jesus has gone up to heaven. And they're like, well, where's he gone? Oh, we'll just keep building the temple. So the image mm. of the beast is the temple. It's the golden calf for the high priest. Mm. And if you know, mm. they they just kept building this big, this big fancy you know building, which was was glorious. Mm. Um, and then of course Jesus is going to come back like Moses did, and hear all these celebrations where they they had they killed millions of lambs. They had these humongous Passovers from I think sixty four to sixty six, and that's when Jesus, like Moses, comes back and. Uh, basically you know force grinds it to powder <laughs> yeah so wow. so so okay so they that's that's Pentecost so the last the the seals are I think the final seal is described as Jesus pouring out fire from heaven um and there's blood and and whatever else but the idea is like uh this is th- that's actually the sending of the wow. spirit so wow, the final crazy. seal is the day of Pentecost wow. And that's when when Peter said there'll be blood and fire and smoke, that's a sacrifice. You mm-hmm. There's blood, you cut the animal, you put it on the altar, and then you apply the fire, and then there's smoke, and then God smells the sacrifice, and then he either rejects it or accepts it. 
And so the idea that Israel itself was now being put on the altar, was being cut in half by the gospel, like like Abraham's sacrifices, put on the altar, yeah. the Holy Spirit falls as fire, and then the 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 freight the smoke, as Paul yeah. says, our testimony is a stench to some. It smells like death to some, but it smells like life to others. And so the Israel on the altar for the sake of the nations is a sacrifice. The smoke was the testimony of the apostolic church. And that's that brings us to the trumpets, which wow. corresponds. So we had the fire at Pentecost. The trumpets is smoke, and it's the idea of, um, uh, you know, when we the trumpets is breath, it's a wind instrument. The creation of Adam works through the same thing where God gives him the breath and then the breath of life and he becomes a living creature. Um, works through the same pattern. Adam becomes a living creature through this liturgical tabernacle pattern. But the Feast of Trumpets is the next one, and that's people say, oh, no, no, the trumpets, Pentecost happened in the first century, but the trumpets are yet future. It's like, no, 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 the trumpets are the the, the testimony of the apostles. Um, and so, but then in Revelation, you have the trumpets as the testimony of the true church, and then in Revelation 13, you have the response of the false church, and you have the the land beast and the sea beast, which is the Jews and, and the Romans, together against the church, against the Jew-Gentile church. So now mm-hmm. it's not Jews versus Gentiles. It's it's bad Jews and Gentiles yeah. versus good Jews and Gentiles. Mm. And that's when you have their false worship. They call down fire from heaven like the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel, mm. which wow. is a, quite an insult. You yeah. know, they're cutting themselves like the priests of Baal, but in this case they're circumcising themselves. Paul says you might as well you might as well become eunuchs for all the good it's going to do you, and that would actually render you unfit for service under the law. You know, go the whole way, really, you know. Um, So there's there's good trumpets and bad trumpets. There's these two, there's a a good, there's a true testimony and a false testimony, and they don't corroborate. That's the point. You know, this is the Deuteronomy, the fifth feast, the fifth book, the Deuteronomy step. There's supposed to be two or three witnesses, you have the true testimony of the church and its two witnesses. Then you have a false testimony, like those who accused Jesus and said he said this and he said that and whatever. But the, the thing is the Judaism at that point had become demonized. It's like Jesus said, I've come and swept the house, but it'll be filled with seven worst demons. And the mm-hmm. worst demons are like the seven lights of a bad lampstand. You know, the eye is the light of the body. The lampstand was like the seven eyes of God, seven spirits. But here, their 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 eyes are filled with darkness, and that's it's 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 like a false Pentecost where we're claiming that we have divine unction, divine God's divine blessing upon us, and like Paul thought he was doing the work of God by killing the Christians. That's what they were doing. Yeah. But by this point, um, the the other correspondence here is is God sending an evil spirit to Saul after he gave the spirit to David, and Saul persecuted David. And so here you've got the wow. old you've got the old order persecuting the new order. Yeah. But God uses the old order to train the new order and humble the saints so that they were ready to take the throne. So we have to suffer in some sense to humble us mm. that we might be we might t- we can take the throne from God without stealing it from him. Mm. As as what Jesus did, he didn't grasp equality with God. He was made complete or perfect through suffering. So, you know, and um, David 
just he would never take the throne by his own hand, even from yeah. his own son. He would just he would only have it from God. So mm. uh so that's the the trumpets is the true and the false churches in their testimony in, in a sense in God's court. And then the bowls, um, the structure where the angels come out of the 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 heavenly sanctuary with the bowls, it actually works through the tabernacle pattern. And it makes it, if you look at that, where the bowls are mentioned corresponds to the lampstand. So the bowls actually come from the top of the branches of the lampstand. So um, because the, the unbelieving Jews had rejected the the lampstand tongues of fire mm-hmm. on the day of Pentecost, mm-hmm. they'd rejected the Holy Spirit. As the angels come through, they take the bowls from the top of the lampstand in heaven and those are poured out in judgment. And it, but the lampstand pictured the light of the law. So now that light was coming to them as a consuming fire. Goodness. Okay. And of course, where do we first see the lampstand in the in Revelation? We see it in the testimony of the seven churches. Mm-hmm. So they were they mm-hmm. were prepared as bowls of judgment at the start, and it's their testimony that is later poured out upon Jerusalem in judgment because but their testimony has now got the added gravitas of the fact that they've been murdered you know like the 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 violence was centered in Jerusalem but it spread right across the empire and of course when Rome got involved and started blaming the Christians for the you know Nero blamed the Christians mm-hmm. that's when the beast comes up the, the sea beast comes up out of the of the sea um so you can imagine the Christians thinking, well, Jesus might have been a false prophet. We've now got the Jews and the Gentiles against us. The whole world is against us. Uh, that's when they started. That's the falling away. But those who persevered, as Jesus said, those who persevered to the end will be saved and are, or delivered. Um, he could have meant just those who survived physically to the end of the siege would be delivered. But the whole idea was perseverance, whether you live or die. Um, so the bowls are an anti-day of atonement. Um, the the day the Yom Kippur means day of coverings. Apocalypse means uncovering. Revelation is an uncovering. So Jesus was on the cross naked, uncovered, and by being uncovered, he was the day of coverings. His nakedness led to our covering, uh, covering of our sins. So in Revelation, he's described as now being robed. He's now covered. He's he's not Adam. He's Joseph. The Genesis step of the book is he's not he's not Adam who was in charge of the food. He's Joseph in charge of the food, mm. um, and he's covered. And then he's going to expose those who had uh, murdered him and were murdering the Christians. And um, that's you know that so the, the apocalypse there is it's not just a revelation of Christ. It's an expose of those who were uh, claiming to be the true kings of Israel and their overt and even subtle, like the Judaizers spreading false doctrine in the church. They were all going to be uncovered, which is why they say, um, cover us from the face of him, you know, like let the rocks and hills cover us. Like it's all about, well, the atonement, the covering, we rejected the blood of Christ, and there's no more sacrifice for sin. And now our, we we will atone for our the blood. His blood is upon our own heads. We have to seek covering from Him. And so the the whole idea of the book is this 
huge day of coverings and the, the the day of atonement for Jerusalem was her blood was on her own head and she was going to pay for the blood of the saints with her own blood. And that's where you read Josephus and you read about all that, you know, Jesus said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and your children. Yeah. He knew what was yeah. coming. And so, um, you know, she's, she's a woman with a cup. She's the woman in numbers five who, faces a test of adultery and she's got to drink the cup. And if she's guilty, she'll be barren. And if she's not guilty, she'll be fruitful. But of course she drinks it and then she's, she's cut off. You know, I will, mm. I will kill her children with death. <laughs> That's what it's about. You're going to be cut out of history. You'll have no offspring. Um, you'll be, you know, people ask um, why Judaism is still around today. And it's a pillar of salt. You know, they looked back. And they're still there, but they're barren. You know, mm. they would sow the land. The Romans uh, later would sow the sow the crops with salt to prevent people from, harm, you know, keep them that they have no food. Um, the idea of barrenness with salt as well was with uh, Elisha putting the salt into the well to heal the the wombs of the women because mm. it was causing miscarriages. So um, Jerusalem is rendered barren, spiritually barren, and you know, without without spiritual children, but also with without a land. Um, so yeah, that's that's the 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 seals are the day of Pentecost and the giving of the law of the Spirit. The trumpets are the result of that because it divides Israel into um, consciously into two parts, where you've got the true church and the false church. Then then both of them take on a Gentile component as well because. Satan's only way of doing things is to counterfeit what's true. God's created a Jew-Gentile body. Satan has to create a Jew-Gentile body to respond. Mm. But then, of course, what does Jesus do? He sets the Romans against the Jews. He sets these two halves because, uh, as Daniel says, the, the iron and the clay, they're not going to stick. You know, they're not, they can't hold together. Um, the clay is red, which is Edom, which is Esau, which is the Herod's. So it's 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 going to fall apart. What he's God knits things together miraculously, even Jew and Gentile, as as George, James Jordan says. Paul's a tent maker. He's stitching Jews and Gentiles together uh, in a new tabernacle. But Satan tries to put these things together, but they don't hold together. So mm. it's like the, the unity of the Tower of Babel, which is why Jerusalem is a spiritual Babylon. It's just mud bricks. It's going to fall down. God's going to blow on it, and it's going to you know going to collapse, which it does. Um, so yeah, that's, that's those three bits. Um, that that's the process. So I think that's when you understand that each section of the book has the same structure, but it's then working through this larger sevenfold pattern where the, the, as Jesus opens the scroll, it, it has its, the next stage of its effect. Then that has the net, like, like blood, fire and smoke. It's a process. Mm. Um, and then in in the the atonement step is when God smells the savor, and uh, Jerusalem is your smoke will go up forever and ever, you know, like like I've offered you as an offering. Anyway, you know, you have been offered on behalf of the nations as a sacrifice, hmm. um, and that's the end of the old covenant order. Hmm. Yeah, sorry to rattle on so much. No, <laughs> there's a, no, it's there's good. a lot happening. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good. We're getting yeah. uh um we're getting uh getting down on the new I mean, 
you're getting down the nitty gritty, but you're also looking at it uh, from a, a larger point of view, which I think is a, a good way to to study it. Um, you mentioned the sea beast, land beast. Uh, what about the image of the beast and the mark of the beast? Yeah, I, um, you know, recently we had people talking, I mean, there's always people been talking about the mark of the beast mm -hmm. uh, and getting, a, you know, either a barcode or, you know, some kind of chip via vaccination or something. Mm -hmm. um, if those things occur, and I mean, look, you had, you had, you know, Jews who had to wear a patch um, under the, the Nazis. Uh, I'd say that all of those things are bad but they are application. They are not interpretation. Right. There was a mark of the beast in the first century. It doesn't mean that there will never be a similar method of control. Yeah, We're given these things to make us wise so that we can apply them. Like the reformers, they identified uh, the harlot with, with Rome. The ho holy Rome had become yeah. unholy. Yeah. I'd say that because Rome was, was massacring reformers, their application was correct but their interpretation was incorrect. It yeah. was just that Rome was now doing exactly what the Herods did in the first century. Yeah. It's trying to silence the testimony of the word of God, the true testimony of Christ. And But now it was more subtle because it was a Christian institution that was doing it. As I said, Satan keeps upping his game. Yeah. You know, he's always he's, the snake's always going to get into the garden. That's when you've got to say, hang on, the voice coming out of here is not the water of life. It's wormwood. <laughs> you know, I can tell the difference. Mm. So um, the mark of the beast, I think the, the idea of the right hand and the forehead, I mean, you have the, because you have the 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 saints sealed in their, I think in their right hand and the forehead, I think it's a similar mm -hmm. thing. This I know they're sealed in the forehead from memory, forehead, but yeah. the idea is that it's it's inherently a spiritual mark, but I, I think that it's referring to the phylacteries, you know, like the law says that you're to bind the words of God on on your forehead, and of course you've got the Jews who actually physically do that. I think they do it on their left hand, though, with the straps and the you know the little book with the the yeah. box with the word you know. But the idea was that um, it's having a go at those who um, were loyal to the temple. Yeah, and because the temple was now beholden to they, unlike Abraham who refused to make any covenants with anybody because he's like no no. This I'm I'm answerable to God and I have to stay separate. They were and and like they did. Uh, Isaiah was talking about talks about how they made covenants with Egypt and other nations and sent envoys to tr because they weren't trusting God for victory over the nations or to convert the nations. They had to make these treaties, and so first century mm -hmm. Jerusalem was guilty of this same kind of statecraft where they were making treaties with Rome. As Jesus said, marrying and intermarrying, that's what it was all about, these political intermarrying um, to, to, to gain state power and to buy protection. And so if you were now part of the old order and of uh, the temple and the, the Herods as this kind of priest kingdom, then you were not on the side of Christ. So the mark of the beast there is just basically a statement of loyalty to the old order. Yeah. It's it's and yeah. buying and selling buying and selling um, is referring to the the temple shekels, mm. you know, yeah. like like yeah. It's a, even though that that has an outcome in in the economy, um, it, everything starts in the garden. And so if you're banned from 
the temple rites and bringing your sacrifices to the temple, then that's that's it. You're ostracized from from the worship. So it's it's using land imagery to describe what's happening in the garden in that sense. Mm. Um, Jordan brings that out really well when he talks about Genesis, where you had the garden, but then all of the gold and precious stuff was down in Havilah and Ophir. And, you know, the nations would bring, the kings of the world would bring their riches to the tabernacle of God. Mm. Um, Pharaoh involuntarily gave all of his riches for the tabernacle, you know. So buying, buying and selling is the idea of bringing your glory to God and making your, your offerings. So they were banned from that. Yeah. But mm. you, we, can, we can still apply it, you know, like people will always try and mark us off as individuals to break up our autonomous nuclear family structure or our national structure. Those things are God-given. They're natural boundaries, and they have to try and deal with us as individuals to gain control. That's what's happening at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I, I take it that the image would be the temple. Yes. So yeah, the the old the idea is, and once again, Jordan points it out that uh, the word the the ten words were graven words, graven with the finger of God. In a sense, they're ten fingers on two tablets, like two hands. That's why it says Moses when he broke them, he threw them out of his hands. You know, like oh, that's what he's saying there. Um, hmm. It's these these tablets are basically the method with which we take hold of the world with God's blessing. If we follow those 10, if they follow those 10 laws, then God would bless them and they would, you know, submission to heaven brings dominion on earth. So the words, heaven is the mouth, then we have God's hands and then we have our feet taking dominion, standing, you know, Revelation's got the angels standing on the land and the sea, taking dominion over the Jews and the Gentiles. Mm. Uh so you know it's it's top to bottom. That's that's and it's and it's a tabernacle as well. Um, you know the 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 tabernacle didn't have any feet, didn't have any pillars, didn't have any legs, but the temple was standing. It was now it had landed. It's not a flying tabernacle like in Zechariah. It's come down. Its landing gear has come down. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now it's standing with its feet. You know, and um, and also in Solomon's temple the. The altar was now next to the lay, to the to the bronze sea, so the land and the the altar was the four cornered land, and the 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 bronze sea was the sea, and yeah. in a sense the temple standing on the land and the sea, mm-hmm. because it now has Solomon had dominion over Israel, but also the surrounding nations were submitting to the worship of God. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they blew it. Yeah. So Revelation, Jesus fulfills that in Revelation, um, and now I've lost my track. But anyway. Um, oh yeah, the, yeah. The image of the beast was they're still building the old temple, thinking that they're 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 uh, they're Solomon. You know, I mean, the six 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 refers to Solomon's amassing six hundred and sixty six talents of gold in his first year in disobedience to the laws of Moses concerning Israel's kings. Don't amass gold. Don't have lots of wives, um, and don't have lots of horses and chariots or weapons. So it's basically. Um, gold guns and girls, mm-hmm. okay, which is which is basically America now. <laughs> you know, like America was, um, America has been the source, a, a source of missionaries for the whole world. But it's like, and it's like with Solomon's kingdom. You know, things when we when we mm-hmm. when we have God's gifts, we tend to go bad. And those are the three temptations fo- uh, that 
that Moses knew that Israel's kings would fall into. And so um, anyone who has power, a David, you know, they had the kings always have concubines because they want to have more kids so they can establish their dynasty. It's not just about sex, it's about power. Um, So, so yeah, so the image of the beast and also it says here is wisdom. That's another reference to Solomon. Sure. It's like you, you, you guys, you've built your house. You think you've built your house on a rock, your temple, um, but you've actually built it on the sand between the Jews and the Gentiles, between the land and the sea. And it's going to come crashing down when the storm comes, which is obviously the Roman invasion. Uh, Jesus said to the disciples, by faith, you will cast this mountain into the sea. Not any mountain. People say, oh, what's the mountain in your life? It's, no, no, no. The mountain was Mount Zion. Right. And then Revelation, you see a, a flaming mountain being cast into the sea where the apostles' testimony has turned Zion into Sinai. And God's glory has come, and he's going to, you know, like the burning mountain is Sinai. They've they've disobeyed the law, so he's going to bring them all, drag them all the way back to Mount Sinai and and destroy them. And then Israel becomes common once again as the nation that was lifted up from the sea is then cast back down. So there's no, you know, people say, once again, what about the Jews today? No, no, they're like the Levite who has finished his priestly course. He becomes common again. He has no special hmm. holy component. There's, he's not set apart in any way. Uh, Israel is now just another mission field. There's no further, um, God doesn't treat them spe- in, in any special way anymore. Yeah. Um, they, they're like like the, the 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 elders who cast their crowns down. In that sense, their their role's finished. Mm. So, um, so yeah, the image of the beast is a golden calf joke, but also a reference to Solomon where they thought they were building Solomon's temple. They thought they had God's blessing, which is why the zealots kept fighting. They had initial successes and they thought, ha ah, God's on our side. And it's like, no, this is, yeah. this is a trap. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, okay. So what, a, what about the deadly head wound and the resurrection of the beast? Yeah. Um, Jordan sees the heads of the beast as being the various Roman empires Mm-hmm. So there's the, the, the four beasts in Daniel, but this one's got multiple heads, and it's he works his way through the mm-hmm. um, the beginning with Julius Caesar, and he says that the old order was was wounded, but then it's it's revived, and I think that that's the seventh head, and yeah. I think okay. that's it's it's yeah. So I can't remember where the break was there, whether it started with Nero, but um, you know, yeah, I think it was. That's that's when the beast the beast the Romans didn't turn bad until Nero, um, up until Nero the the Romans were protecting the Christians from the Jews. Yeah, and so the force when the each the the four beasts in Daniel were like big guard dogs. That's one thing I love the way that he points it out because we always think of these beasts as being bad. But he's like, no no no, just as just as God has four beasts around His throne in heaven as like you know beasts on a leash as His guardians. Yeah. And Solomon had lions, lions down the stairs in front of his throne. Um, so, so God was using these beasts like four horns around the altar to protect His people. But then, when a guard dog went bad, God would have to, you know, have them put down. 
<laughs> and and he'd yeah. have a new one. So yeah. so when Babylon turned Babylon turned bad, like God converted Nebuchadnezzar, which is just the most amazing thing when you read it. And Nebuchadnezzar sends this sends this gospel message out to everyone in the whole world, you know. And you're like, wow, that's just amazing. Like, who would think that? That's like Roman, like like Nero's Rome being converted yeah, later yeah, on, you yeah, know. Pretty much. And yeah. Rome was Rome is the fourth beast. So, but the fourth beast turns bad under Nero and gets rabid and then starts eating everybody, you know, attacking. Um, yeah. And that's when that's when um, you know it's it it receives this. It's been I think it's been wounded by the gospel in a sense, but then it's revived and it becomes, it goes bad. And that's when, you know, so that's the beast, but then the, the Herods become the face of the beast. They become the mouthpiece for this. Mm. It's not a, it's not a, it's not an animal we know on the earth. It's not described in any way that we could say, yeah, that's a tiger or that's a whatever, you know, a leopard or whatever they are. But um, this is something that's, it's, it's a mix of everything but yeah, so that was its revival was like the last ditch, kind of like when you know if you watch the first Terminator movie when they think he's been destroyed but he comes back again mm-hmm. and he's even scarier than ever, you know. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's that's the idea. It's this last ditch. Uh oh, we thought it, we thought the battle was done, but no. And he's 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 you know this is the real this is the real deal now. Um, and it's it's a bit like um, when. You know, Satan, God uses his people as bait. He does that at, at the Exodus when they're trapped at the Red Sea and Pharaoh's like, ah, ah, they can't get away. Mm-hmm. They're sitting ducks. Yeah. And it's a trap. Yeah. Um, it happens in the book of Esther. And when mm-hmm. when God's, uh, sorry, Haman's decree says that anybody who wants to attack the Jews and plunder them can do so. And they're sitting ducks. And Haman is descended from Esau via Amalek. So it's a Jacob and Esau thing again. Mm-hmm. And God's people are sitting ducks and God says, no, no, you're going to win. Like you're the bait in the trap, but it's a trap. And the, the end of Revelation actually refers to that in, our, in, a, in the event that's still future to us, where Satan's finally unbound. He's not at, currently unable to gather the nations as one against the church. If he did that now, we'd be gone. But they, he keeps, God keeps them, Jesus keeps the nations fighting against each other. Every time they try to build a European Union or whatever, it falls apart. God comes and de- destroys their Babel, you know. It just can't hold together. But at the end, Satan's released for a short time. What does he do? He gathers the nations. And it's this, it's it actually alludes to the events in the book of Esther where it's a trap. What this does is because all of God's enemies suddenly think they have the upper hand, they expose themselves. And it's, you know, and then God's like, aha, now you've come out of the woodwork. I'm going to wipe you out. And he does. Mm-hmm. And that's so basically just a mopping up operation. So in the first century, it was the same sort of a deal where God's enemies now show themselves and they are rabid. Satan himself cannot resist the fruit on the tree. You know, whether it's Jesus on the cross or the 144,000, even though he's he's been warned that it's going to bring about, God's going to... God's going to bring victory from the jaws of defeat. Satan, God constantly tempts Satan with the same thing that he was tempted with that he tempted mankind with. Here's the fruit. Here's the fruit of the womb. Here, you know, what are you going to do? And Satan just loses it and he just he can't resist the temptation. He's like, 
oh, God is a man, I can't resist. I have to kill him, even though I've read the scriptures. I know it's going to bring my downfall. Like Adam, I was warned, but and he does it anyway. Mm, <laughs> you know? Interesting. Wow, it's wow. just there's just this irony, and that's why um, in Genesis people have a go at you know they have a go at Abraham for lying, and they have a go at Jacob for lying, and whatever. But they, these were acts of heroism. All the way, Genesis is all about outsmarting the serpent and beating him at his own game. Like the like the Hebrew midwives, they lied to Pharaoh and God blessed them. Yeah. Because they were like they were like right. Eve, Eve outsmarting the serpent. Mm, and so yeah. it's all and Jesus all the way through, it's about um um Solomon saying, Bring me a sword. Um, Job saying offering his his daughters. People say, Oh, how could he do that? It's like, no, 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 this was he was this was a trick. He knew what they were gonna say. Like like Solomon saying, Bring me a sword, I'll cut the baby. He exposed their hearts. When God offers a temptation, it exposes their hearts. So um, in the first century, when the Christians become vulnerable, all the baddies expose their hearts. It, it shows who they really are before God. And of those who said they were of God, like the Pharisees, etc., they were motivated only by hatred. When you read the stuff that they wrote, even about their own common people, they were entirely motivated by hatred. You know, they weren't they weren't mm. good guys. There were a few that were converted, but um yeah, you know, it's 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 pretty serious. So uh what was the question again? But anyway, yeah, the wounded the, yeah, that's yeah, right. So basically wound. that was Satan's last ditch terminator back from the dead. Um, I'm you know, you can't kill me, I'm even more powerful than ever. It's the opposite of Jesus being Obi-Wan saying, if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than ever. Yeah. And then you know, yeah. Actually, the whole first century history works through the the first Star Wars movie. You know, it's just, um, it's just it. It's, someone says Jesus was a pacifist. They're like, no, no, no. He's like Obi Wan. He knows when to put down his lightsaber and be killed, mm. and he knows when to blow up the Death Star and everybody in it. And that mm. was the Jewish war. Mm. So there's a time and there's a time and a place. They had their warning. Now the time is, you know, um, he turned the other cheek, but then they slapped him again. And now they've got, there's two witnesses against them. Mm. Mm. Wow. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So we'll fast forward uh, past a few chapters. I want to jump to the millennium now. Uh, how do you view the thousand years, uh, the first resurrection and second death? Yeah. Firstly, I think the second death is related to the, it sounds a bit weird, but the two goats on the Day of Atonement. And we said, as I said, that this was a big Day of Atonement against Israel because they rejected Christ's blood. They trampled it underfoot, and now they would be held, they would atone for their own sins. So the first goat was the first death, and that's the one that was offered up, was burnt on the altar and offered up to God. It went to heaven. Like Jesus went up in a cloud, okay? That's what the picture is. He ascended the word, the word, uh, Trans, we, it says whole burnt offering, but the word literally is ola, which means go up. It's an ascension offering. Mm-hmm. So that's the book of Leviticus. Noah offered ascensions. Um, so the first goat was an ascension. That went to heaven. And the second goat was sent out to the wilderness and it carried the sins of the people. So the first goat was actually blessed, was the blessings of the covenant. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Israel went from down in Egypt up to Canaan with a pillar of fire and cloud. It was an ascension. Hmm. Um, so uh, the second goat was the second death. So in other words, the first death is the martyrs. 
they were the ones who were killed and, and went up to heaven to God. Mm-hmm. Um, the second death was the, the Jews who had rejected Christ and they were going to be sent out. All the sins, would they would bear all their sins, atoning for their own sins and the sins of the rest of the nations. Like Israel, Jerusalem copped the, the, brunt, the brunt of the judgment. Rome was shaken but not destroyed. You know, they had four emperors in one year in 69, I think. So Rome was shaken, and then they had a new dynasty after that, which was actually mostly was better in some ways, at least initially. Um, but so the second death refers to those who who have rejected God and are paying for their own sins. Obviously, um, we can people think the first death is physical death and the second death is spiritual death. I don't think that's even though that is still true. I don't think that's what this is sort of so much referring to, but. Um, you know, but the idea was that the martyrs would only suffer physical death and then they would have eternal life. So there is that element of it. But the the, the first meaning is liturgical. And I think, uh, you know, when you had Jerusalem destroyed and the zealots who went out to Masada, um, that's a great miniseries if you watch that, made in the early 80s with Peter O'Toole, uh, just the story of Masada. It doesn't take sides. Um but the idea is that these Jewish zealots who'd survived, when they went out into the wilderness and there they were all slaughtered. And it's like they were the goat that was sent out, you know, into the, the martyrs ascended to heaven. And, uh, oh, hang on a sec. I'm just gonna, getting a call there. Um, so the second death was, it's referring to the division of Israel between the good goat and the good goat and the bad goat. Um, so, um, yeah, the millennium, uh, once again, as like with 666, the number is a symbol. And, um, you know, James Jordan's great on chronology, and he says, well, it was a 1,000 years from when Abraham offered, well, almost offered Isaac, we did offer him, Isaac on Mount Moriah <clears throat> until when uh, David bought the same site for the temple. So it was exactly the same spot. And then Moriah was renamed Zion. So that was a thousand years, and then uh, it's a thousand years of worship in tents. There's no permanent house, but and from the time that Solomon, I think he finished, from the time he finished the construction, some point of the temple to when Herod's temple was destroyed was another thousand years. Mm-hmm. So in Revelation, that has become a meme, <laughs> like mm-hmm. the six six six. It's it's loaded with meaning historical meaning but it's not a literal symbol the herods didn't have 666 talents of gold it's saying you have broken god's laws for kings and the, you know those who are judging you have like one greater than solomon is here and you have rejected him mm-hmm. um so a thousand a thousand years is simply the administration of the church as a, a long but limited period of time in this new temple made of people. Mm. And so, you know, so you understand, you know, the year 1000, everyone was panicking, and then you've got other people saying, well, no, you've got to take it literally, but that's not how any of the symbols works. Um, The numbers are always, um, they're referring to historical events, but now they become a a hyperlink (laughs) to something in the past. Everything in Revelation is a hyperlink to previous scriptures. So, um, So we are currently in this time where the gospel is spreading like leaven in the dough, gradually transforming the world, um, and then it will come to an end. 
So the first resurrection, this is a bit, there's a bit of contention here with people. I, I believe that there was a resurrection in, in the first century, that all of the old covenant saints and the new covenant first century martyrs um, were taken by God. They were taken like Enoch. They were suddenly they were not, you know. But the, the reason is, the, once again, it's the garden land world architecture. Jesus was resurrected in the garden, and then he was taken to heaven. Um, then you had the saints massacred in the land, and that finished, that avenged the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood speaks of, of salvation rather than vengeance. Um, I believe they were taken to heaven. They received their inheritance, and that's what Revelation is about, that God wiped all their tears from their eyes um, it's talking about the promises to those who were um, uh, waiting. And it's in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, no, no, those who were dead, who are dead, will precede us. And he's not saying it would just be like a one-two, I don't think. He's saying that right. they will be they will be taken first, and I, I suspect he was among their number, even though he wasn't aware of it at the time. Um, and then he says, then those who remain, and then he's looking forward to the end of time. So once again, it's garden, land, world. He does this in 1 Corinthians 15 where he talks about Christ the first fruits, then those who are Jesus who belong to Christ at his coming, and that was around, I think it was around 66. It was just at the beginning of the, the siege. I think that's when it happened. Josephus mm. does talk about armies flying through the clouds. I don't know if they were angels or saints, but there's quite a few historians who record that. Um, and then he says, then Christ, after having put every enemy under his feet, then it talks about the final judgment. And so he's, even though it's it's he's, it seems like it all happens pretty quickly, it's the same as Adam in the garden, Cain in the land, and then the world, the flood of the world. There's a, there's a there's a gap where you have the the cultural version of the same sin, but in a larger domain, and it takes longer. So Paul's concerned about the order of things, one, two, three. Um, so, yeah, we have that final world resurrection to come. So in Revelation, the first resurrection is the one that happened uh, just before. I mean, the saints, you see the saints in heaven calling down the curses of the law upon Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. So they've already ascended. So that's the first resurrection. And then the second resurrection is the one at the end of, of history, the final event. So um, the, the full preterists kind of try and squish Revelation 20 into the first century and tell us that the millennium lasted for 40 years, which is, that's you, tough. you know, you, that's tough. You're, mixing your you're mixing your metaphors there. Yeah, you know, like for, 40 years is a time of testing. Um, the, why didn't it just say for 40 years 40 if it's years using symbols? Yeah. 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 So, so it's tough. Um, but once again, we've got a God who kicks the can. People say, you know, God is so capricious and he's so quick to judge. And every now and then he will. Like, you he, you know, Ananias and Sapphira, it's like mm -hmm. they got what they deserved straight away. Right. But that was a warning to everybody. Mm -hmm. And then we realize how merciful God is. Yeah. Um, God, didn't, God didn't kill Adam and Eve. He right. offered a sacrifice on, in their, on their behalf and the sacrifice bore their death. Yeah. It was a real death. God didn't kill Cain. He let him off the hook mm -hmm. temporarily. But then he's got a long fuse, but he has a fuse. Right. Same with Israel's kings, you know. They, well, the, the laws in Leviticus where it says the the, law, the sins that have a death penalty. Um, David committed two of those sins, and yet yeah. God let him off the hook right. because yeah. he repented. Mm 
there's always mercy. Um, it's when, like in the first century, Jesus forgave them for their they've been led astray. And I think it's Numbers, where is it? Is it Numbers 15? Somewhere in Numbers where it talks about there's, if someone's led astray into sin, there's mercy. But if it's high-handed sin, then they will be cut off from among the people. Mm-hmm. So Jesus forgave those who'd been led astray to kill him. But then it's like AD 70 is Jesus saying, Father, don't forgive them. They know exactly what they're doing. This is high-handed sin now, yeah. and they'll be cut off. And Jerusalem was utterly cut off, like Jericho. So, um, yeah, I think a lot of it is applying the processes we see in the Torah. Revelation just brings it all home in a in a cultural sense. Mm. All those things that you were warned about now they're coming they're coming to fruition. Mm. Um, I think another thing Jordan brings out is the fact that. When Jesus talks to the seven churches, he's nipping the same sins in the bud, like Jezebel, Balaam, um, you know, all those things. But then he shows them Jerusalem where those sins have not been nipped in the bud and they are now full-grown and they're thorns. It's like the like the, the castle in Sleeping Beauty. Like <laughs> it's just overgrown with, with thorns, like Cain is a human thorn, you know. Mm. He just, he draws blood. He's not a tree of life. He's a... He's a creeping vine of death, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I think so when Paul talks about a thorn in the flesh, I think he's talking about, you know, his brothers who just keep keep drawing blood, you know, mm. um, possibly. We don't know, but wow. that's the symbolism. Mm. You know, he's got a, this thorn and he's like, can you deal with it? No, no. Goodness. Wow, yeah. wow, 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 wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. But, uh, um, that, just a bit more on that. that. There's always a link between the land and the womb. Adam's... There's a curse on Adam working the land and a curse on Eve's offspring. And Jesus says they'll be eating and drinking, fruit of the land, marrying and giving in marriage, fruit of the womb. So calling Cain a thorn, as Jordan does, treason, he's got a book called Trees and Thorns, there's always this equivalent between what's growing in the land. And you see that in Isaiah too where he talks about, you know, I was expecting grapes and I got bitter, bitter grapes. Um, talks about thorns, you know, things that... Um, will draw blood rather than bring life. So I think when Paul mentions a thorn in the flesh, it could have been anything, but the symbolism's consistent. So I think it's the Judaizers, the ones who just, like he, he was a thorn. He was out there killing Christians, you know, um, thinking he was doing the work of God, murdering his brothers. That's the point. Um, and the first mm. epistle of John is all about this. Jesus trying to tell them, Anyone, any Jew, and he's written writing mostly to Jews, any Jew is motivated by hatred, who is not loving, who is doing these things, you know them by their fruits. You know, what are they? And he's t- sh- telling them, showing them how to discern between the true brothers who claim to be working for God and the false brothers. Um, so, yeah. you know, it's, it's a, you know, just another thing I have to throw in. John's got three epistles, and the first one, He's judging the serpents in the garden, and the second one, like Adam, like God did when He came to the garden, He deals with the, with um with the serpent, and then He deals with the woman, and that's the second letter where He's talking to um, Kyria, who's that's a female um, version of Lord, and then He deals with a man. He deals with uh, Gaius, and that's the male version of Gaia, which is Earth. So John's three epistles deal with the serpent, then with the woman, then with the man. And then in Revelation, 
And then Revelation, you have the beast, which is a corporate serpent, the dragon. And then you have uh, you have the woman, who is the harlot, was Jerusalem. And then you have the man, who is Balaam, the false prophet. So it's 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 like Eden on steroids. It's the same conspiracy. Wow. Yeah. So that's what I mean. The, the symbolism is consistent. So whenever you see a thorn, you're supposed to go back to the the curse and the Garden of Eden, and yeah. you know, yeah, and human thorns. And of course, the crown of thorns. Who put it there? You know, I mean, it's um, yeah, wearing mm. the curse, which is an obvious one. We get that one. Hmm. Mm. Anyway, sorry, rambling on again. No, that's yeah, good. But it's just, I mean, look, there's a lot of people today who are into symbolism and, and fiction, and there's a lot of really smart fiction out there. What gets me is the fact that a lot of people who are in the Christian academies don't bother with typology, and they're missing most of the picture. So many times they're clueless as to what's really going on because they keep isolating it into little bits and not looking at it as one picture. Um, but also, too, they 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 treat the average Christian as as an idiot that can't cope with this stuff. When I know the kind of games that my kids play, video games, mm -hmm. they are so smart. Like you've got to have your wits about you and you've got to be able to think. Like like people are so savvy that they can cope with this stuff. And I've there's some things I've shared with people who've never heard this sort of approach before and the lights are just going on because they know all the texts and yeah, all of a sudden yeah. you're making it's like the 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 links between the synapses the, all the cells were there and all of a sudden they just you turn the power on you know and mm -hmm. then suddenly just like oh wow now i can see what's going on you know and i was the same when i came across james jordan um yeah. all of a sudden and and every the bible's so consistent that you learn something in one spot you you can apply it in apply, so many yeah. other places mm -hmm. and then you start to get the jokes like as i said i'm working through Isaiah, and there's so many things there that were mysteries, and all of a sudden you say, "Ah, oh, now I get what you're doing. I understand why you said that. I understand why you put these things together. I understand why you shifted from this to that." Um, you know, it's yeah. There's a lot. There's a lot of stuff going on, but it's you've got to read cumulatively. So, yeah. Mm. yeah. Yeah, and that's really, as you mentioned before, that's the book of Revelation. I mean, it's. Um, I love studying eschatology because when you study a book like Revelation, you're studying the entire Bible. Um, yeah. Let me ask you a follow-up on uh, the first resurrection. Um, I actually love the interpretation that there was a resurrection because that's exactly what it says, the first resurrection. There's so many different yeah. alternative ways to, to explain that one, but you know, God forbid it did it actually be a resurrection. Um, are people, you know, you mentioned Enoch. Are, are you uh, seeing people being taken alive in this resurrection or is just just resurrection of, of the dead? Um, it's a tough one because we're only, we're only told um, things in sort of symbols that reflect patterns in the Old Testament. And that's why, the garden land world pattern, you know, like the, the history from Adam to Noah works through the same pattern in Israel's feasts. And the flood is the atonement, a day of coverings, the whole world's covered. But Enoch is taken as the first fruits. So when you see that God's actually working through, you know, Adam is the Sabbath, he, he messes it up on day six. And so he doesn't enter into God's rest on day seven. 
And then you have Cain and Abel, and Abel's like the Passover. He's he's killed. Then you have um, the family tree gets split into two, the priestly line and the kingly line. Um, Enoch is taken as the first fruits. Then, as in Revelation, and that's like Jesus who ascends as the lamb in, in Revelation. It's the same pattern. Then you have spiritual warfare, um, and you have a division between the believers and you know the, the church and the the unbelievers in the first in 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 the history of in Genesis six. Um, I don't. It's the sons of God are not angels. They're they're the priestly line because it's two family trees. Now you have the two trees in the garden, and then the priestly and kingly trees. Adam steals the kingdom by stealing the kingly tree. Same temptation that Jesus suffered in the wilderness. Then you have the two trees of Abel and Cain, priestly brother, kingly brother. Cain was the firstborn, but he he usurped his brother's role and pushed in first. And like kingdom first, Adam was kingdom first. So then you've got the two family trees and you have um, uh, Lamech as the seventh from Adam on the kingly side and you've got, um, was it? Was it uh, who was on that? Was it was it wasn't Enoch? Maybe it was Enoch. Anyway, the seventh from Adam, Enoch, the seventh Enoch from Adam. I think you, seventh, yeah, yeah. So you that once again, you've got Enoch, Enoch versus Lamech. It was this diagram like a family tree, and there's the good priestly guy who's taken and and in the tabernacle, it's the same pattern in the tabernacle where you've got the ark, and then you've got the veil, which is a division. Then you've got the lampstand as the kingdom and the table as the priesthood. And Enoch is lifted up as, as as bread and wine in a sense and taken to heaven um, as the first fruits. But then you've got an intermarriage between the two sides, and it yeah. seems that the kingly side, to, it's I, it seems to me because of the gifts that the kingly side had with metalwork and like the Philistines who could work with iron, um, they had all the gifts, they had all the technology. I think they were their polygamy was the way that they were getting around the curse on the womb. It says men began to multiply on the earth. And they were basically having lots of kids by having lots of wives, which was breaking God's order. But then you have the poor priestly line who become second-class citizens and they were tempted to intermarry. And this mm. theme of intermarriage keeps happening through the Bible where mm-hmm. God wants to put them back together, but it's got to be submission to heaven, priesthood first, and then dominion on earth, kingdom yeah. Adam had to if Adam had submitted to God, God would have given him the dominion that he promised, but he stole the dominion. Jesus submitted to God in heaven and then was given all power in heaven and earth, you know. Um mm-hmm. so that's the the two trees in Eden are there all the way through, whether it's the two pillars in the temple. Isaiah structures a lot of his passages around this this architecture, which is why it's a bit seems a bit weird, its architecture. Um so the intermarriage there meant that the sacrifices ended. And the, the curse on the land and the womb, which is what the, the offerings of Abel and Cain were there to hold back, stopped because there was no more priesthood. And so in Revelation, the temptation is once again to intermarry. And that's why Jesus said it'll be like it was before the flood. They'll be eating and drinking, probably eating meat to get around the curse on the ground that, that Cain suffered, and they'll be marrying and intermarriage. And all of this is about stealing God's gifts without submitting to him. And that's what we always do, you know. God says, Adam, I bought you a car. Adam takes the keys and takes it for a joyride and crashes it, you know. He's not interested in having lessons. 
in Revelation, Jesus has got the keys. <laughs> you know, <Yeah>. hey, <laughs> God's given me the car. Now I'm the driver, you know. Um, mm. So, yeah. Um, but anyway, so Enoch was taken as the first fruits in that pattern. Jesus is taken as the as the first fruits in that same festal pattern in Revelation. But then it's cumulative. So Jesus is the first fruits in the garden. The 144,000 are the first fruits to God and the Lamb in the land. Right. Um, and that's why, so you have a resurrection in the garden, a resurrection in the land, and I think they are, they were taken. Possibly some living people were taken. Um, Jordan says that there's such a break between the certainty of the apostles and their inspiration and the diverse opinions between the church fathers that does oh seem, it does seem to show that there is a lot of people missing. That. That's crazy. You know, like there's there's a break. He said, in a sense, we've got to start from scratch because there's even though there was a transference of wisdom and whatever, there's mm. there's this break. Yeah. So I, right. it wouldn't surprise me if some people were well. taken what some people were taken alive, you know. But I believe that if it did happen, it happened at the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem around 66 or in 66. Sure. Because wow. that was the the seven year the seven year period that the dispensationalists think is future happened then, and you've got three and a half years of persecution of the saints, um, and then you've got three and a half years of the days of vengeance upon Israel, and that's the two goats. The first half is the first goat that takes it goes to heaven. There it is. They go to heaven. The first goat goes to heaven. Big day of atonement, and then the second goat basically goes to hell. Um, and that's that's uh, sixty six to seventy, so that's another liturgical support for the fact that God took took the first fruits to heaven. I mean, you know, a wave offering was always lifting something up. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. So, um, and also too, it, it ties into the fact that the you know the the Levites weren't given any land, and that pictures occurred the curse on the land for Adam. And that was withheld through mitigated through mitigated through sacrifices. And then you had the virgins who voluntarily served at the tabernacle, bearing the curse on the womb. They were voluntarily barren. And that's what happened to Japheth's daughter. You know, like he he offered her, but he would have offered a sacrifice in her place. She went and served as a virgin at the tabernacle, and so he had no dynasty. Um, so she mourned her virginity by ascending mountains. It's always going up, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's that the word ascend again. Uh, so I think they were taken to heaven as the first fruits, and they were taken like Enoch. All of a sudden, you know, they're mm-hmm. gone. Um, so yeah, as Jesus was taken up out of their sight, <laughs> it's the that's the thing. Once once you see the pattern, you go, oh, okay, I know what's next. Yeah. As I said, wow. I'm going through Isaiah, which is a tough book. But once you know this, once you know the the architecture and the pattern, you go, ah, something to do with this should be next. There it is. Yeah. You know the tune. There it That's is. Crazy. You know? That's wild. Yeah. Um, I have a couple follow-up questions. Uh so let me ask about the I have one more on the resurrection, but uh before yep. I go there, I want to get some clarity on the second death. Um that's not future. You're saying that is that was uh that was first century, the second death? Um, well, it does, once again, it seems that God kicks the can. The full preterists point out that yeah, yeah. Daniel okay. talks about a resurrection of the, you know, the good and the evil uh, in Daniel 12 at the same time. Right. But yeah, then yeah. they say, well, um, 
If you believe in a future resurrection, then that's not the case. But in Revelation, it says the rest of the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And so I think the full preterists are correct in what in pointing out what Daniel says. But I think that Revelation once again God kicks the can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and okay. says, okay, I'm going. To, the good guys are going to get their reward now, but the bad guys, I'm going to put them on pause for now until the end. And I think it's it, they will get the second death in an eternal sense. Then they will, you know, the 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 unbelievers will get their their just desserts at the end. But I think it's also the fact that um, by having by putting that off until the final world judgment, every tongue will confess in one go. Yeah, everyone from the judgment on the land and mm-hmm. the judgment on the world will confess as one because Jesus will then be fully vindicated, not just in the garden and the land, but also in the world. In the world. And, you know, um, one thing we don't, one thing we think about justice and mercy, but in God's mercy, he often delays things. You know, he didn't cut off Israel in the wilderness. He didn't cut off Israel when the kings went bad. Um, Jesus didn't have the city destroyed at his crucifixion when he called, called 10,000 angels, legions yeah. of angels. Um so the idea that God is patient and kind and will often break his own word, you know, like people say, well, Adam didn't die when he sinned, so he must have only died spiritually. I'm like, no, no, you know, certainly there were spiritual consequences, but the death was borne by an, by an animal. So, you know, whenever Satan uses God's law to entrap people and he weaponizes it, that's what legalism is. So... Satan gets Adam and Eve to sin so that God will have to kill them and Satan will get the inheritance. He's like the butler in the Aristocats. You know, he's got to get the cats killed so he can get the money. That's what Satan does every time. He's, mm-hmm. you know, he's like, I have to get these people to sin so that God will do what he said and kill them. And God keeps pulling another card out of his sleeve, yeah. like animal yeah. sacrifice or, you know, <laughs> whatever. And, um, and even then, with with the destruction of the world, God's card was Noah building an ark. Like, well, okay, I'm gonna. There's there's a way. There's a way through this judgment for the faithful. Yeah. You know, there's he always provides a way of escape. Yeah. So, you know, it's that's what I think, and that's why Jesus called the Pharisees of sons of their father the devil, mm-hmm. because they used the law to entrap and condemn people. Wow, yeah. And that's what you see with the woman caught in adultery. We all say, well, where was the man, obviously, but they were, they entrapped her so that they could use her to she trap Jesus. It's crazy. Je- Satan trapped Eve in order to trap Adam. And so the story of the woman caught in adultery is a reprise of the Garden of Eden. And the ser- the serpent is the, fa- the, the, the men with the rocks ready to have her killed. And there's Eve, and and Jesus is both Adam, a good Adam, and the Lord who comes to offer the sacrifice because He is the sacrifice. So it's the same. So when He when He writes in the sand the first time with the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments, I'm sure it's Thou shalt not kill or murder. That's what they were doing. They're of the their father, the devil, who was a murderer from the beginning. And the second time would have been Don't commit adultery. And those are the two central commands. The, the kingly sins of murder and adultery. You murder people to maintain your throne and you, you you have adultery to have lots of sons to establish your dynasty. So, you know, that's that's what he's writing, the, the kingly sins. Um, and that's that's 
that's what the devil does. He's and today, if you this, people say, "Oh, you're a legalist because you're telling me what God's law says," no, 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 I'm telling you to save you, not to kill you. You know, it's it's Satan. His his strategy is entrapment. So when the sons of God marry the daughters of mankind of, of Adam, it's entrapment. They they're being tempted. They see these daughters. They're like Eve seeing the fruit on the tree. Oh, gee, they look good. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, no, no. If you wait on God, Noah and his sons were all monogamous. That's important. And they didn't have kids. Like Noah had kids, but none of his sons had kids. So in a, they were waiting in the ark for the fruit of the land, a new earth, and the fruit of the womb. And all of the animals in there in pairs didn't have kids. They were all Adam and Eve pairs all the way through, waiting for the promises of dominion, offspring, and food. And if you have food, you have a personal future. And if you have offspring, you have a cultural future. And so whereas the culture before that had stolen those things from God, thinking they would have an eternal dynasty, Noah and his sons waited. But then, of course, you know, Ham tries to steal the inheritance from his brothers. So it starts again. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow. But anyway, that ex- that explains Jesus' reference to eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. Yeah. It's the, the fruit of the land and the fruit of the womb. So everything, if you don't read the Bible with the Garden of Eden in mind at every step, including Revelation, you're going to misinterpret things. Um, you know, even even Ezekiel's reference to um, to donkeys. Okay? It's, it's just, it's all about fertility. Mm. Okay? So, yeah. Mm. Wow. Okay. Um, so, you know, that was my understanding of the second death. Something you said made me question it. So I'm glad I got clarity on that. But I want to go back to the first resurrection. And my question is, um, is there a distinction between those that were part of that first resurrection um, in the first century when that happened and those that uh, – um, those that are waiting for the second coming in the immediate, in the intermediate state. So those after. Yeah. Right? That, that, I mean, are they adjoining I'm not everybody really else? Sure on that one. Yeah. So like basically if, you know, if I, if I drop dead right now, would I, you know, go straight to heaven? Like Paul says, you know, to be absent in the body, to be present with the Lord. Um, I don't, I, I think, I mean, the, the, the whole, the imagery behind a resurrection is a harvest. And mm-hmm. so, uh, the idea that you would be in some sort of intermediate state, it's, I'd say it's a definite possibility, but the idea of receiving a new body, that all happens at once. Like Jesus, the reason that other people came out of their graves at Jesus' resurrection was because one seed goes into the ground and more seeds come out. And so the sign of these people coming out of the graves and then going to Jerusalem to testify, they would have died again. It wasn't an eternal type. They didn't get their eternal bodies. It was like the other, like like the raising of Lazarus. He died again. But it was a sign of a greater reality to come in the same way that Abraham understood that the land of Canaan was a sign of the heavenly country. Um, God works in ways. He keeps moving the goalposts. You know, he, he, he instructs us using natural things like human sons, so that we can understand sons of God, you know that's that's how He works. The natural natural fruits are always pictures of spiritual fruits. It's just how He works. Um, so you know we have visible parents like human fathers, so that we then understand a concept of an eternal invisible father, and 
you know, there's, that's that's just how things are constructed. God gives us a physical temple so that we can now understand the church as a spiritual temple. Um, so I don't know about the intermediate state. I don't know if we're conscious. I mean, it talks about us being asleep, so I think that's probably how we should take it. I think that if I died now, I'd be asleep, but it would just be like waking up in the next instant, you know, all of a sudden, you know, it, it, it consistent. Adam was put into a deep sleep as a picture of death. So, and Noah was in a deep sleep, um, uh, you know, from drinking wine in a godly way. He wasn't drunk. <laughs> um, Abraham was put into a deep sleep in each sense. It was, they were put into a deep sleep in a, in a, in a symbolic death because they were going, God was going to, it was like a nighttime and God, when they woke up, would be, let there be light. This is now a new order and I'm going to establish a new covenant in you. And so, you know, that's a new era. Um, and it's the same with dreams. God sends dreams because he's sending light in the darkness. It's a bit, it's a new beginning. It's a new creation. So I think, you know, yeah, I think we we'll just, when we die now, we'll just be asleep. Same as those who had fallen asleep before the first century resurrection and then, you know, they wake up and, uh, yeah, that's, that's, um, they're suddenly, they're conscious again, but it's, it's, it's in, you know, there's no, they're not aware of the time in between. That's how I take it at the moment. I think that's, you know, I could be wrong. I mean, yeah. you know, and when it says, blessed are those who die in the Lord, I think that's referring to those who were being, who were, who were afraid of martyrdom because they would not really have to wait. Like the Jesus had sure, sure. <laughs> opened the door and yeah. it's like, no, no, you're going to, you know, like those who, yeah, yeah though the kingdom of God was like those who had suffered over the previous 4,000 years were like the laborers who'd worked all day, you know, right. and then right, these, right. these guys who were coming in at the end were like, no, nope, you get your reward straight away. Equal Don't pay. be afraid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's yeah. probably, that's probably the idea. It's interesting you say that. I always find it perplexing when you read about Samuel getting called up from the dead, and he's sort of upset mm. at Saul. He's like, "Do why are you disturbing my sleep?" That's what he says. Like, yes, um, which is interesting, and uh, that's uh, that makes sense to me. You know, when you say there's a first resurrection, it makes sense that that the rest of the dead both righteous and unrighteous are, are both waiting for that second. Um, that concept of asleep is really interesting, though. Um, I know James B. Jordan writes about the uh, Abraham's bosom, the, the first firmament heaven, and the veil being torn, representing the separation between that first firmament heaven and heaven where God dwells. And that's a picture of that resurrection, them being taken into the presence of God uh, yep. after, you know, the end of the Old Covenant, uh, which is really beautiful. So in, in, in some sense, I can kind of see, I mean, how do you reconcile that? I mean, I guess would you take Paul's words to, to say to, you know, to die is to be in the presence of the Lord? in reference to that first resurrection or, I mean, how would you uh, make sense of that? Um, I think, yeah, I think possibly, I mean, 
the only way I could reconcile that is to say that um, the Bible often speaks of things from our perception. It's mm. like you know the two light, the two lights in the sky. Mm. They're exactly the same size. That's why we can have an eclipse. We now know that they're not the same sure. size, but they gotcha. look like they're the same size. Mm-hmm. Um, and it talks, you know, the same as he as he points out the same way that we point, we talk about the sun coming up and going down. So speaking of things from a human's perspective, perhaps that what that's what Paul's doing there. Sure, you know, he he yeah. he knew that if he that if he fell asleep, um, that yeah he would he the next thing he knew he would be in the presence of the Lord. But um, so yeah, I look. I think that that's what makes sense. But also the fact that every day, where we we wake up, we go through our day, um, and then we go to sleep. Every day is, as he points out, morning and evening is is a picture of death and resurrection. Um, you know, the the biblical sevenfold pattern is found in in every workday, and in and in a human life where you know you like the biblical pattern is you get up, you go to work, you do the work. You get the reward. Um, you come home, have a, have have a meal, and then you go to sleep. Well, that's a human life in miniature. You know, like our career is the central part of our life. Um, that's the time when we're most physically able. And then, when, then as we get older, people rely on our wisdom, and uh, you know, we we have the the rewards of of having having worked. Um, and then we get to old age, and then we fall asleep. So, to you know, I think sleep is 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 the picture that's consistently given but the difference is because it's also this the same pattern is found in the harvest year at the end of the year the last festival booths or tabernacles also known as in gathering the idea is that if you've been faithful you're gathered to your fathers but mm-hmm. and that's the idea of someone being buried in the land but if you if you were left unburied the birds and the beasts would come and eat you and you'd be scattered and that's the idea of you have not been gathered to your fathers. You have been, you have disintegrated. Like, you know, you've just been scattered here and there, and there's no resurrection for you in that sense. Like, God's not going to put you back together. Hmm. You know, like that's this, that's that's eternal death. Um, that's why uh, I think Naaman was it Naaman who requested for a truckload of soil from the oh, holy yeah, land, yeah, yeah. yeah so he could be buried in it. You know, I mean, it's it's the promise of re- and and the idea that you Jeez, wanted to be buried in the land. So, um, and the first century mm. resurrection was all about the resurrection from the land of Israel as an as as a microcosm of all the dry land of the world because it was a sacrificial substitute, you know, to hold back the flood. That was another sl- something God pulled from His sleeve. Satan's like, well, things have gone bad with Ham in the garden and now they're going bad with the tower of babel and the land now we just have to wait for the world again and god's going to have to destroy everyone and he promised he wouldn't so what does god do he calls abraham and sets up a miniature land you know the land of canaan and that's why the prophets all use creation language you know the end will come with a flood a flood of what troops you know it's a social land and sea, the Jews of the land and the Gentiles of the sea. So God, once again, it's like hmm. when I was a kid, they didn't have CGI. So when you wanted to blow up a building or a mountain or something, you build a model, Yeah, you know, and they're getting back to building models now, which is amazing. Um, so God built a model, just like the tabernacle was a model of the universe, the cosmos. So Israel 
was a model and the 12 tribes were a model of all the nations. Um, so, you know, that's, that's how he got out of that one. He, once again, like with Adam, he put in a substitute. So with, to prevent another flood, he put in a substitute land and sea. And I think that's a key to revelation as well, because it talks about, you know, judgment on the earth when it's really judgment on the land, all the tribes of the land will mourn. Um, a beast coming up out of the sea is, neuronic Rome coming up out of the nations, you know. Um, so, yeah, once you get this this sort of substitutionary image, it's no different than the, than the Jews wouldn't eat the socket of the hip because they mm. understood that the, that was the, the animals were sacrificial representatives of people. So yeah. um, wow. they got it. We don't. You know, we're a bit thick. Yeah. <laughs> we shouldn't be. Yeah. It's... it's, it's it's a, modern, it's a modernist, you know, modernist scientific mind that just doesn't get typological links you know, too well. Although I think we do. I think we just switch it off when we come to the Bible for some reason. Yeah, you know, I, right. my, my, goal, my goal is to get people reading the Bible the way they would watch a movie or read a novel because it uses all the same devices and better, you know. Like, like, like reading Tolkien is just a gateway drug to the Bible, you know. Mm. Tolkien seems pretty shallow once you get into biblical typology. <laughs> I'm not knocking him at all, but just, yeah. you know, like after after getting into this sort of stuff, you, anything else is like, really, is that all you've got? You know, like yeah. this is so multi-layered absolutely. and so rich. Like it's yeah. just amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back to this first resurrection again. I think I have a couple of follow-up <laughs> questions. I, I, I can't get off of it. Um, I know. You keep putting the train back on the tracks. So that's okay. <laughs> um First resurrection. Do you believe that they they got uh, their heavenly bodies at this resurrection, or is that yet to come? Well, my my logic is that we see them sitting on thrones, so they must have had bums. Mm. Okay, I got you. Yeah. Um, and, <laughs> also, uh, too, I think that the 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 message there is that, um, like in the Old Testament, you see angels angels come down and take on human bodies, but then they tend to just kind of disappear. Like like the one, the angel that came and spoke to Samson's mother, the woman referring to Eve, um, you know, it went up, it went up with the off with the sacrifice in the flame. Yeah. Like the angels, the angels, the angels that, that went to to Sodom um as two witnesses mm-hmm. um just vanish pretty much. And I think the idea is that they come down, they take on human bodies, but in a sense they take on flesh, but they did never they never took flesh to heaven. And that's the idea that the human form could not be accepted in heaven in a, in a, in that sort of a sacrificial sense. I know I said that the elders might have been, you know, covenant heads from the Old Testament, but um, the, God's more concerned with the, the the picture, and the image is that Christ was the first person to take a, a, a human body, take the flesh, to heaven, and so to think that the first resurrection was only spiritual kind of says well okay what was the point of jesus taking a human body to heaven you know like uh, in a sense like the the unchangeable god has changed in the sense that there is now a man in the glory Mm. you know and Mm. the man is the image of god like the human form is is a tabernacle and the tabernacle is you know father son and spirit in its layer um so i think they did receive human physical bodies i think that was the whole point that um, it wasn't just kind of 
you know, smoke that went up to heaven. It was a transformed, glorious body. I mean, look, Jesus' body, his resurrection body was kind of a picture of that. Um, it was it was a better version of of you know he could he could now pass through closed doors you know like it's the idea that it's it's still a physical body but it's the, it's um, people talk about the, the sort of the 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 difference between the natural and the spiritual but what we see in 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 from the beginning is that God creates the natural and then clothes it in the spiritual. So Adam was natural and he was naked. When God returned, if Adam had obeyed, he would have been given a righteous a robe of righteousness and clothed with glory. He would have been give, anointed with the Spirit. Um, he would have been God's prophet, um, a priest, king, and a prophet, because that's the order. That's how it goes. You, yeah. you, you hear God, you act for God, and then you speak for God. Speak, yeah. So the prophet is the most mature. So the idea then of Jesus' resurrection body, it's still the natural body, but now it's clothed in the supernatural. Mm. That's the idea of a sacrifice ascending in flame and smoke. It's clothed in glory. Um, so our supernatural bodies will still have the natural elements. So the idea of people around us who are lost, who are still the natural man, it's not that the natural's bad, it's that it's not complete. Sure. It's not the finished product. It's still got to be, you know, it's like you've got to put the meat in the oven and then when it comes out, then it's glorious. Oh, then, man. you know, like you don't put, you don't, God doesn't have raw meat. It's got to be cooked. He's mm. got to smell it. Mm. You know, the day of Pentecost, put the fire on the on the meat. Mm. And now all of a sudden we have, you know, that's, that's how God thinks. I call it God's kitchen. Whenever mm. you're going through suffering, you're in God's kitchen. You know, he's cutting you up and uh, something better is going to come out the other side. Like Job, you know, at the end, he's he's not just he's not just a good cut of meat. He's now a meal. <laughs> he's now he's now a feast, but mm. he feasts with God, you know. Um, so, yeah, if you're ever if you're suffering in any way, God's preparing you for something better, you know. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay, I got, I got one more question on on the resurrection, and we'll move on. We'll, we'll, we'll try to get to our last chat. I'm doing my I'm doing my best, but I, no, I no, say, you're doing the, great. The, the key is the key is to see it as another expression of processes that we should already be familiar with. And, yeah, the clue. Yeah. I mean, I I I loved your explanation. Uh, because we're all familiar with this idea of going to sleep every night, and then we just wake up the next morning. So, like the concept of soul sleep shouldn't mm. it, it's not foreign it's it's part of our everyday experience so um yeah. I, I i do like that my question for you is the pair I, I some people don't think it's a parable but uh lazarus and the rich man um oh. you know how do you <laughs> yeah yeah um uh, it sounds dull but architecture is the key to that one you know the rich man is presented in he's dressed in uh linen and 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 scarlet i think or purple and that's mm -hmm. that's the colors that the priests used to wear the the priests of israel were dressed in linen which is white like a lamb and then they had this red sash that flowed down onto the ground and apparently it's not in i don't think it's in scripture but it's in the traditions that when they had to carry stuff they would grab the sash and throw it over their shoulder so mm -hmm. it wouldn't drag on the ground but basically they were supposed to look like lambs who had been cut and were bleeding out onto the ground. And the, wow. the, the sashes were made of um, blue, scarlet, 
and purple thread. I think they had, might have had some gold in there as well, which is a holiness. But the blue blue is your blood in your veins. Scarlet is when it comes out. And then when it's oxygenated, I think it – no, it's blue, purple, and scarlet. When it's fully oxygenated, it's scarlet. So basically they're just blood gushing. That's what they are. And then wow. – so that's death. They are death, okay? But then after they sinned and didn't enter into the land like Adam and Eve, God clothed the Israelite men and women – with a robe that had four blue tassels like four rivers. Okay, so each person, that's resurrection. That's baptism. Okay, they've got wow. this water, it's a blood. It's like um, in in uh, in the, the Passover, there was blood, and then in the Red Sea, there was water. In Jericho, they crossed through the, the Jordan, which is water, and then there's blood. So Moses had to tip out water, and it became blood on the ground, and that's a curse. But the the priests had to tip the water the blood out like water on the ground, so the the the, the death became resurrection. It's the other way around. With Jesus, blood and water came out together, and it's like, well, if you believe, the blood's first, and if you don't believe, the water's first. If you believe, His blood is becoming water for you, and if you don't believe, the water that comes out here is going to be blood for your your death. Okay. Mm. It's the, that's how it is. It's one is the water of life. The death is, you know, the life is in the blood. Mm. Um, mm. But you know, it's 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 like the day of Pentecost. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Pen, uh, sorry, Peter's Peter's speech when he says um, the the promises to you and your children. These guys had just called down the curse of the law upon themselves and their children five five weeks before. I think mm. that's how it works. Mm. And he's yeah, saying yeah, that yeah. blood that blood that is on you. If you believe that blood is on you, that's going to be your destruction. If you believe that blood is on you for your life, that that's the promise to you and your children and mm. those far off. And of course, those those who were far off were gathered into Jerusalem who didn't believe Paul. Um, were that blood on them was to their death. You know, uh, yeah. I don't see how. You, no, I, we can't take Peter's speech to us directly. This was for Jews, the men of Israel. Um, so. Yeah. Anyway, what were you saying again? What were we talking about? You're describing blood and water. You're describing the rich. <laughs> you're describing the rich man. Yeah. Um, well, so that's right. Yeah. See how it's connected. But anyway, <laughs> so he's dressed as he's dressed in priestly garb, and the idea was that priests are mediators, and this man, this rich man, who had all the blessings, the kingly blessings of God, um, like like Job did. You know, God took all of Job. Job was a priest king. God took allowed Satan to take all of his kingly attributes. His the fruit of the womb and the fruit of the land, that's what he lost, the things that God promised to Adam. Mm. But that was his kingly stuff. And then because he was a priest king, if you were a, uh, you had to be physically perfect. And so what did God allow Satan to do? He corrupted his skin. He was no longer an acceptable sacrifice. Mm. And yet he was. He was the one who was without spot. He was blameless before God. So spiritually he was blameless. So in in uh, the Lazarus and the rich man, Lazarus is covered in boils. You know, he's he's the one who is supposedly not acceptable to God, um, and yet he's the one who his his the the priesthood was not mediating for people. They were treating the commoners. I mean, you read some as I mentioned before. You read some of the stuff that the Pharisees wrote. Not only could you not lend money to a commoner, they hated the Gentiles, they hated the Samaritans, but they hated their own common people, the Haaretz, people of the land. They absolutely despise them, you know, like if they, they said things like, oh, well, let them be gutted like a fish. Like like they were just, 
I call this a perfect hatred because it was complete. You know, like it's like like in Isaiah when he talks about they're sick from the top of the head to the foot, sole of the foot, or the other way around. Like the whole body is now sick. There's no cure. The only end for them is now death. There's no, we can't fix anything, you know. So Lazarus, but when it talks about um, after they die, we have to think of the tabernacle because that's the context. The context is the temple. And so who has ascended? When, when you put an offering on the altar, it, it separated the good from the bad. Like when we die, our old flesh will not be uh, corrupt flesh will not be going with us in a sense right that will be dealt with it'll be like the two goats each for each of us it'll be mm. like the two goats on the day of atonement mm. there'll be a redeemed self and then the old self the old man will be gone mm. so you put an offering on the altar the smoke ascended to god and god smelt it and that was fragrant but the ashes the dust like adam you return to the dust the dust would fall down into the altar and that's the place where there's fire right so mm. in between, so you've got Lazarus is now purified as an offering. He ascends to heaven, and there he is at the table of showbread and wine with Abraham. And the rich man, he's fallen as ashes, not risen as smoke. He's fallen down as ashes, like the sons of Korah, being devoured in, by the earth because the, the altar pictured the four-cornered land. So he's down inside the altar saying, could you just reach your finger and tip it in, put it into the laver, which is between heaven and earth, like the crystal sea? Could you just put your finger in there and reach down? And so basically that's the thing. He's gone down into the abyss, and as the unacceptable part of the sacrifice, he's like Adam. He's returned to the dust. And so Lazarus is up there having a feast now with his with his father, Abraham, and uh Abraham says, no, there's this huge gulf. So the gulf was between what was inside the tent and what was outside the tent in the in the altar. So it's the same with the sons of Korah. They what they were offering incense, thinking that they could ascend to God as fragrant smoke. What happened? No. <laughs> the, the land swallowed them up. They were sucked down into the what the altar pictured as dust. They returned to the dust mm. whole. And Isaiah uses that as a joke as well when he talks about um all the pomp and glory of, of, I think he's talking about Judah at that point, the, the, the land would come up like a giant mouth and and swallow them whole, you know, because they'd been um, so arrogant before God, thinking that they could ascend to heaven. Um, so that's the picture. It's, it's the architecture is the key. So it's not about the eternal state in a sense. It's about what was your role before God as a mediator and but then once again, it actually does picture what happened, that, that those who rejected Christ are still dead in their sins, they're down in the earth, and yet those who um, accepted being ostracized by the Jews as unclean because they were now mixing with Gentiles, they ascended to heaven. That's why in Hebrews when it says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together, he's not talking about missing church per se, He's talking about meeting together with Gentiles, which made them enemies of the Jews. He's writing to Hebrews. So he's saying, like, these people are like, oh, but if we go to church where they're with Gentiles and we'll be persecuted, he's like, no, no, don't. That's that's a testimony to them of this new order. Mm. And that's, you know, we can certainly apply it to today, like, well, why aren't you a church? But um, the point there was they were meeting with Gentiles and they were doing exactly what Peter did. 
afraid to to eat with with the Gentiles, and you know that was that was anti-Christian. <laughs> yeah. So um. So that's so yeah. That's the every, all the little details in um that in the parable are, are significant. You know the fact that like nothing, no no strange detail in scripture is there. There's no idle word. Everything is supposed to go. Why is that there? There's a reason. What's he referring to? In the Old Testament, so the rich man was acting like a king when he should have been acting like a priest, and um, you know the dogs were unclean; they're coming and licking his sores. Um, and uh, you know, dogs are scavengers; scavengers are unclean because they eat death. Lazarus is like living death, and so it starts off with you know uh, he's he's like the living dead, but he comes becomes the dead living at the end. Yeah, yeah, it's a total reversal. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Um. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. <laughs> I keep. I keep. Keep going. But I. I we we got to get. We got to. Uh. We got to move on. So I want to. So you see. Um. You know the end of Revelation twenty to be yet future, which, as you already pointed out, is a really the difference between a a partial and a full preterist. Um, um, not, not. Oh, sorry. Yeah, the end of Revelation twenty. Yeah, sorry. Not the yeah, full. Yeah, 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 sequence. yeah. Yeah. But you. So then you go uh, into twenty one and twenty two, and you see that. Uh, That's more well because he that. returns. He he gives us a vision. What's interesting is that Revelation has seven parts, and the last part is chapters twenty to twenty two, and that has seven parts. And it recapitulates the pattern of the entire book in the same way that they blew the trumpets once a day around Jericho, and then on day seven they blew them seven times. Seven times. There you okay. Go. Yeah. So, and the same way that all the covenants in the Bible work through the the pattern of Genesis one. So you have Adam, the the Adam called to qualify as a covenant head, but he blew it. That's the day one. Between judging between light and darkness in the moral realm, uh, Noah is day two, which is the separation of the waters. Day three is the land, which is Abraham and first fruits, which is Moses. Day four is the rulers, which is David, Solomon, etc. Day five is is swarms and hosts of in the sky and the sea, and that's the prophets and the Gentile armies and and that period. Um, day six was the restoration era where you had the priesthood restored leading up to the time of Christ. But the history and revelation works through this sevenfold pattern because what it's doing is every one of those seven steps grabs an element of the, of one of those old covenants and puts it into the new. So what is, what, what's happening there is, um, Jesus is taking elements of each of those like he's come as a thief, like the Herods have stolen the inheritance like 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 the reverse of what Jacob did. So Jacob stole the inheritance from Esau. Esau, the Herods are from Esau. So it was Haman in the book of Esther. So it was mm-hmm. Amalek. Um, Jesus says, I'm coming as a thief because he's coming to steal it back. He's Jacob. And he's like, Esau has, has received, he's stolen the promises. I'm coming to steal them back from you. Steal them back. That's, that's why the disciples said, will you restore the kingdom to Israel? Right. And they weren't talking about, um, having an earthly kingdom like David, they were saying, Esau has ta- Edom has taken the inheritance. Are you going to give it back to the Jews? That's what they're talking about. And he says, well, I don't know the exact time, 
but you're going to testify here and there and there, and then it'll be given back to God's people from the Herods. He's not talking about a far-flung, you know, restoration of, of the Jews or anything. Mm. He's talking about the end of Esau. Um, so, and now I'm off the track again. Um, <laughs> what was it? Oh, dear. You, well, oh, Revela- yeah, Revelation. So the last, so basically, yeah, Revelation 20 to 23 works through the sevenfold pattern. So Jesus opens the new covenant scroll at step three of the book. He opens the books of judgment at step three of this final section. And that's that's the end of this age. So the scroll begins this age and opening the books to judge is the end of this age. But it happens at the same step in that sequence as it does in the whole book. So the last, so step seven here is like the seven trumpets again. So just like Jesus and the, the ministry of Jesus in the first first fruits church is grabs something from every single one of those covenants, um, and and is like the seven trumpets on the last day, combining them all on day seven. So Revelation itself combines all of the steps of the book into one sequence at the end. And that's why it's a, it jumps around a bit because it's actually it does deal with the final judgment, but then he comes back to talk about um, the events that were facing that the people at the time were facing. So it's not chronological in the sense that's why it's a bit confusing, but it is working through that through that pattern. Sometimes what it has in that step is the opposite of what it had in the book because it's flipped it around. It's like well that's what it was because I was dealing with the evil. Now I'll give you the good version. So, um, like, it contrasts the, the the rebellion of the Herods with the New Jerusalem, for instance. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah. So, but Revelation follows the covenant pattern. I think we we'll, we'll, should probably cover that, but it's pretty basic. It just God is the boss, who He puts in charge, what He wants them to do, what the results are, blessings and curses, and the final thing is succession, which is the next step. You know, okay, well you've those who disobeyed have been cut off. Those who obeyed, you've inherited the land, you've inherited the future. And so the last step of Revelation is succession arrangements for those who've come through the judgment of AD 70. And this is what they've inherited. This is the new age. And this is a description of it very briefly. So um, so not all of the book is about for the first century. It always God always gives us a glimpse of, of the future. And that's what he has at the end of the book of Revelation. And then that's when Jesus gets back to it and he's like, well, if you want this, you know, here's what you have to do. He comes back to the audience of the day saying, this is what I've promised you, like Adam. Here's what I've promised you, dominion. This is a spiritual dominion, has physical aspects, of course. But, um, you know, keep these words. This is what you have to do. Um, So, you know, that's how we understand the book it has the standard covenant structure that works through the bible mm. yeah so you see new so you see all of 21 and 22 as uh you know the, this description of new jerusalem the the inauguration of the of the church the new covenant uh, yeah I, I it's i mean look you know paul speaks of the new jerusalem as being present when he says you know old jerusalem's like hagar egypt down below um, relying on the waters below, uh, but Canaan relied on rain, which is the waters above, and that's Sarah. And so he contrasts the two in Galatians four. He just as just as Israel ascended from 
you know, the city below to the city above. Um, he said, so you guys can see physical Jerusalem is still here, but that's mm. the old city. And I know that you can't see the new city, but you're just going to have to believe me that that city is more eternal than this one, which would have been very hard to believe at the time because, you know, they just Absolutely. they were finishing the temple and it looked like it would last forever. And then, of course, suddenly the tables are turned, literally. Um, Jesus turned the tables once again. Uh, so, you know, the New Jerusalem is a, the current reality, but the idea is that the, the gates are open. Um, I think, too, there's a correspondence between, you know, when it talks about when they crossed the Jordan that God made the water stand up as a wall. And the idea was that he turned, like, the river itself was like a wall, but now he turned it into a gate. Mm. And so the new we, we're told that there's we see the crystal sea in heaven, which was pictured by the, the laver and the tabernacle and the sea, in the bronze sea, which is because it's made of bronze, it's like a lake of fire. You know, it's like it looks fiery, but it's water. Um, I think when the flood happened, which was the first laver, I think it was volcanic as well, so it was fire and water. I think it was like scalding hot when the fountains, you know, like fiery water, just, I mean, imagine that, you know. Um, so, yeah, but in Revelation, you see the crystal sea and then you see a crystal city. And I think it's the same thing where it starts off as the natural, with nature as the sea, and then it becomes culture where it becomes a crystal city. So the crystal sea that we see in Exodus 24 when they went up, Moses and the elders went up on the mountain and they saw Christ walking on a sapphire pavement. Well, that has now been constructed, like like cutting down a tree and building a house or a tabernacle out of it. God takes the natural and then builds it into the supernatural. Like we take gold, silver, precious stones, and we make something out of it. So God has now taken the crystal sea and turned it into a crystal city where it's standing up like the Jordan did as walls and gates, and it's a city where as you pass through, you're cleansed. And and you're you know you're now that's why it says outsider you know dogs paws you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. so basically that basically the, the the city itself is a laver it's 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 like it's like a baptismal house where you pass yeah. it's a rite of passage yeah um you know at the in the ancients as you know they used to sit in the gates as a judge Lot sat in the gate of the city as a judge he was a righteous judge um. That's why they despised him. Um, so the New Jerusalem itself is, in a sense, we sit in the gates. It's, I mean, you know, the foundations are the um, the apostles and the prophets, and then it's, it's got walls and gates. So the idea is that whereas, um, you know, if, if, if parents could no longer control their son because he was a drunkard and whatever, they had to take him to the gate, the elders in the gates, and basically take him to a higher authority because he'd grown up now. And he was he was going to answer to a higher authority, and so they would take him to the elders in the gates. And if they couldn't deal with him, then he would be cast out of the city or stoned, or you know he could be exiled. Um, the idea with the new Jerusalem is that you know there's new gates, there's spiritual gates, and that's why um, baptism becomes the means by which someone is put under church discipline. It's 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 uh, you know you've You've testified, you've been baptised. Um, if we put you under church discipline, that's the mechanism 
by which you are called to repent. It goes back to the idea where I said Adam was under the sword and he was supposed to bear the sword. Israel was under the sword in Egypt. They bore the sword in, in Jericho. Um, you're either under the sword of the gospel and called to repent or you're bearing the sword of the gospel as Jesus' legal representative. So the gates of the city of the New Jerusalem are, um, you know, you're either under the sword and you come in and then, you know, you become a sword bearer or you're kicked out and called to repent and you're under discipline. So um, it's, a, it's a current reality. Um, mm. It's related to the fact that um, the end of Ezekiel describes spiritually the order of the Jew-Gentile order after the exile from the book of Esther onwards. Mm. It wasn't a physical temple. It's describing yeah. Yeah. social a social order as architecture. And so John picks up the same thing. He says, here's the architectural blueprint, and this is what God is building. And I think when it says coming down from God in heaven, that's a it sounds like it's a continuing continuing action that the blueprint we're, we're constantly referring to that blueprint, just like Moses received the plans for the tabernacle and David received the plans for the temple. We're getting the plans and we're building you know, building that Jerusalem on earth. So it's a, that's what's, and then when it's finished, you know, um, when it's, once it's complete, then that's when the end will come. Hmm. Yeah. So it could be a long while yet. Yeah. Listen, I mean, when I first, I think I first read this from Kenneth Gentry Jr., this idea of New Jerusalem, and it, uh, it took me, a little second to rewire, but um, it, I love it. I mean, I, I, I mean, I love this this concept, and it actually makes sense. Uh, James B. Jordan mm. makes a couple points about the uh, tree of life being healing for the nations, and you already mentioned mm. everyone outside of the city there. So it's like some of the language there doesn't really make sense with this eternal state interpretation but with this yeah I, I just i just love the picture of a new heaven new earth descending it it, it just kind of mm. takes serious um the ending of the old covenant and the inauguration of the new covenant um, yeah and w what i liked with jordan is that he spends a lot of time on the on the prophets and the the time between the exile and the first century we tend to jump from the prophets straight to the first century. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. You know, like, I mean, the promises in Isaiah, for instance, of the Messiah, but you have to look at what at the rest of the chapter and what's written around them and say, well, no, no, this had an initial fulfillment. Indeed, and yeah. um, a lot of a lot of the promises of uh, victor victory in battle in Isaiah are actually referring to what happened in the book of Esther. Mm -hmm. And when you when you you know, when you look at it, you go, Ah, oh, okay. It's not just some kind of pie in the sky promise of <laughs> Like, like they're not just riffing and just sort of making all of these, you know, they, they're using symbolic language. But, um, you know, like when he says that uh, they'll beat their swords into plowshares, um, you know, like, yes, that's always the gospel will always bring reconciliation because we're reconciliate, we're reconciling ourselves to God, which automatically should reconcile ourselves amongst each other. But the, 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 pr the primary reference for that is Cain and Abel. You know, Cain was a farmer and he beat mm. his plowshare mm. into a sword. Mm. And that, so the idea of... That's um, crazy. Oh, well, also, what, what does Jesus do? He gives us his flesh and blood sword 
as bread and wine, plowshare. Mm, so wow, that's by doing that, he's 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 doing the opposite of what Cain did, mm-hmm. and he's turning he's turning our conflicts, but he's uniting us together in him. Um, and you know, he's also putting the flesh and the blood back together. You know, when he when you had to drain the blood out of a sacrifice, um, but then you know when he came out of the tomb, his flesh and blood were back together. Um, it's the same as. Um, the trees in Eden were bread and wine, basically, like the garden version of bread and wine, priesthood and kingdom. Um, when God split humanity to prevent the same sort of intermarriage that led to the flood into priests and kings, Jews and Gentiles, um, they could no longer. Melchizedek brought bread and wine, but in Abraham, those two things were separated and they had to tip the wine out. You weren't allowed to drink wine with God. So basically the, the, the bread and the wine, like flesh and blood, were separated. And it's not until the Last Supper Jesus puts them back together. Hmm. So it's this whole, it's a, it's, it's this God divides and conquers, yeah. you know, like he wow. splits, he, he cuts Adam open to create his bride or construct his bride that he then might put them back together as husband and wife. He splits Jew and Gentile in two that he might put them back together in a better way in Christ. Divide and conquer is always how he works. It's not just Julius Caesar. God does it all the time. Um, so once we see that there's this sort of diamond pattern, you see it in the tabernacle too. It starts with the ark and then it splits into, you know, priesthood and kingdom with the lampstand and the table, and then he puts them back together in the in the laver, and then there's an inheritance at the end of the land. So it's it's how he always works. So that's why another thing about God's kitchen is if he's, if he's cutting you up, it's so he can put you back together mm-hmm. in a better way, you know. Um, so the bread and the wine, you know, swords and plowshares. But the point there is that what I was going to say was that Jordan has spent so much time on understanding that that era after the exile as a sort of a halfway house between the Mosaic era and, and the kings where things were pretty straightforward, um, a halfway house between that and the new covenant. Yeah. So yeah. he's, you know, God scattered the Jews across the empire and they founded synagogues everywhere. That's mm-hmm. a lot like churches. Mm-hmm. And so Paul goes around and it's a bit like where the disciples were sent out to the houses of Israel first um, to see if they were in or out of the new order. But then Paul goes around to the synagogues and says, mm-hmm. are you in or out? Um, it's yeah. like a Passover. Are you in or out? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. uh, I think the language in Revelation draws on Ezekiel a lot because Ezekiel was kind of halfway in between. You still have the Jew-Gentile divide, but then, um, as I said, in Jesus, step five in the covenants was that era where they established synagogues everywhere. Step five in the first century was establishing churches everywhere and bringing synagogues in or leaving them out. And it was they were basically taking all of the glory out of each of one of those covenants of the past and putting it into the new, mm. taking the inheritance, plundering the old order and putting the good stuff into the new and leaving out the bad stuff. So it was like plundering Egypt, you know, or David plundering the Philistines or whoever, or Amalek, whoever it was. Um, so, you know, Jesus, Jesus comes to plunder. He comes to um, take the lampstand. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, rambling again, but sorry. <laughs> No, no. I'm thinking, I'm, uh... in, 
I'm thinking in pictures. I'm just telling you what I see. You know, no, it's all, it's all, it's it's all a movie. It's all a movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm gonna try to bring this to to a close. Um, but I'm gonna go ahead and go for it. We got, I got a couple more questions that I think I, you know, um, at this point might as well might as well go for it. So (laughs) I've got a a clarifying question, um, which really I'd like to get a response from you on on this one, Um, and then I'll. uh, and then I'll and I'll wrap up with one one more. So, yep. um, sure. you know, I'm, my understanding of post millennialism prior to being exposed to your writing was what I had sent you, which is uh, I think you referred to it as historical, but I'd always had explained that the post millennial view is that the millennium will be inaugurated at some point in the future once the world has been evangelized and has embraced Christianity that would then bring in. It's still a future golden age. Right. Which would last for like a literal thousand years. So whenever I read your material and you're describing the millennium as, um, you know, the church age, that's, Mm. that's kind of what I've understood as the all millennial view. And really and truly all millennial is, is post millennial in the sense that they too are also, looking for um, Christ to come at the end of yeah, the millennium, the church I think age. There's, there's not a huge difference. Um, I think Jordan, rec- like they recognize that there's still a lot of evil in the world and they're right to say we can't be triumphalistic. But what, as as I said with Jordan, and then you've got post mills who are, yeah, let's go and take dominion. And then, um, you know, Jordan was kind of, in that, but then he wrote an article called "The Dominion Trap," which he which he says is this is exactly the test faced by Adam. They're seizing the kingdom mm, instead of sure. submitting to God and um, overcoming Jesus' way, and then receiving that inheritance as a gift. You know, in a sense, the church doesn't have to take dominion. Mm. Um, in a sense, as simply receive it as a gift. You know, like Adam was promised dominion. Um, like with Joshua, he was promised dominion and, you know, God said, I'll give them into your hand. There was still going to be a battle. But as we know with the, with Jericho, like that was the start. It's like this is a sign of how I'm like a, a miraculous sign of how I'm going to deal with everything from now on. I'm not going to tear down the walls in a miraculous way, but this is a sign that I'm with you and that as you go in and, and conquer these cities, it'll be as if the walls are just falling down before you. Um, right. Yeah. God always does that. There's, he always does a miraculous sign, a bit like the the, to- the tongues in the first century were a sign that the gospel would be translated into every tongue. You know, like we actually have to do the work, but it'll be as blessed as that initial sign was mm. um, leading up to AD 70, So, which mm. reversed the curse of the Tower of Babel. You know, it's mm. like, well, I've got... I'm going to do Babel again, but in a good way, you know, all of those, all of those separate nations that were formed, I'm now going to fill. God always forms and then fills. It's always like build the house and then move in, you know, mm-hmm. days one to three forming, build the house days five to seven or five, yeah, four, five, six, fill. I'm going to move in, build the tabernacle. And then I move in um, day of Pentecost. They're waiting for God. He's built the house and then he comes and moves in, you know? Um, so, that's how he works. So basically, Jordan said, our job is to be servants, to be sacrificial where possible, to be bold witnesses. But in a sense, we've just got to take the stand 
Um, we need to be involved in business and politics and all of those things. But if we if we think that is the mechanism, then we're making the same mistake that Israel did when it made all those treaties, yeah, when they could have just had God's power. Mm. Um, so, so yeah. So the the uh, Jordan reconciles a mill and post mill with the understanding that it's it's our sacrifice and suffering and service that conquers the world. So in a sense, in a sense, suffering is not the mark of an of a, a redeemable irredeemable world, and it's it's the means of its conquest. Hmm. So that's so, where the the Amil, what the like both the Amil and the, the post mill have kind of got two halves of the story. You need to put them together and realize that the cross is what conquers. But there will be conquest, as we saw, you know, the suffering of the martyrs and 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 the Christians um led to the conversion of Rome. So whereas the Amils don't see a, a, an actual outcome in history, that's where they're wrong. It does come. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. But it doesn't come through seizing power. Right. It comes through comes through submission to God and then God gives it says, like Adam, oh, I can trust you now. Here's the car keys. You know? And then of course Rome went bad and then God had to do it again. So, you know, but each time he does it, as with Israel, he just keeps expanding his territory. Yeah. So so really the the main difference between all mill and post mill according to this interpretation really is that the post mill is has the tenacity to to, to take Jesus's words seriously that the mustard seed will will grow yeah. and that yeah. they they take that to mean it to mean kind of what it sounds like um yeah i mean there's there's the twin errors one like the 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 the, the amil they just sort of they're just uh what do you call it pessimillennialism you know like oh it's all just going to get worse and worse and worse until the end we just have to hold on uh, whereas the sin on the the post mill side is like, yeah, we can't lose. And it's like, well, no, no, you win by losing. Yeah, <laughs> you it's, know, it's yeah, somewhere. <laughs> yeah, so they both, yeah. and it's once again those two post mill and a mill. They're the two trees in the Garden of Eden. The same mistakes. One's all priestly, and it's like, no, no, we just have to submit and suffer, and that's all. That's our lot. We just have to be servant leaders and constantly downtrodden and whatever. And then the other guys are like, no, no, we're kings, you know. Sure. Um, and the, 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 the Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. That's what he said. Wow, so wow. It's a bit. It's a bit like the difference between, say, um, the Reformed and the Pentecostals. You know, like the 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 Pentecostals want to harvest every week. And they'll manipulate people emotionally to get a harvest because, oh, it's all harvest time. And it's like, no, 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 no. You've got to plant and water and weed and do all those things, and then God will send a harvest. Whereas the Reformed guys are like, well, we just plant and water and weed and we never really expect a harvest. Hmm. You know, like we don't want any sign of emotion or mass conversions or anything. That's wrong. Like no 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 you you're both getting it wrong. Yeah. You know there's a patient time and then that's that's how God works. Um, hmm. uh, the the kingdom of God is it it's it doesn't come as an invasion. It comes as a harvest. Hmm. And that's hmm. what people they need to understand that yeah. Thy kingdom come is not Jesus come and kill everybody. Yeah. yeah. Or and rescue everybody. Yeah. It's 
your kingdom will come as a harvest. And when it arrives, it's just like the natural outcome of all that work, and it will be undeniable. You know, mm. when Jesus said that the fields were white to harvest in his day, that was because the synagogues had been planting seed for 500 years. And now all these Gentile believers are coming out of the woodwork because yeah. of the ministry of the synagogues. And that's why we go, why did God wait 400 years between the exile and, and Christ? It's like because he was planting and waiting. Same as the 400 years in Exodus. He was waiting for Israel to grow into a nation yeah, until it was sure. ripe. So, yeah. Mm. So I think that's, you know, there's patience. One side isn't very patient and the other side's a little bit pessimistic. I think, um, you know, no, both absolutely. Kind of right. No, yeah. yeah, that's why that's why I love this. Like I said, I'd never heard of this type of post mill before. So, uh, but it's encouraging, you know. It's oh, sort of like okay, absolutely. We won't. I, as you uh, was you said that you teach high school Bible. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's one of those things where you a lot of the time you realize that you're just planting seeds. Right. Like you'll see some. Yeah. Uh, you know, I I was in a public high mm -hmm. school, which is was pretty hard going, but. Um, you're just getting God's foot in the door, like you're planting yeah. seeds. If you just yeah. expect great results initially, then you're going to be disappointed. And yeah. that's where the, the, the A-mills come in. They go, oh, we're just not seeing the results. It's like, be patient, you know, God's working. Yeah. Like in the book of Esther where he's not even mentioned, and yet there he is. You mm -hmm. just see him, you know, moving the chess pieces around. <laughs> Wow. Yeah. Wow. Well, I, I love that. So I guess my, my last question, you kind of already alluded to it. There is just a frenzy, uh, which I can't even say it's a recent frenzy. Um, every generation is probably guilty of this, but certainly um, you talk to anybody who, who holds a dispensational position, we're like at the door of of the final judgment and, and the second coming mm. of Christ, right? Um, now I've heard uh, James. I read one of James B. Jordan's books, something about uh, something about Christian future of the church, something like that. I mean, he talks about the, the pattern wow. yep. and how um, he believed that we we're at the end of a, of a pattern. He just believes it's going to start over. You mentioned it could be a while. Um, so I mean, oh, when I said it could be a while, I meant the actual end. Yeah, but I right. think he's correct. I mean, he's correct in in seeing that we're at the end of a cycle. Yeah, and that was my because my question: the, was it like, do you, are are yeah. we near the end? So I think you've answered that. Um, as far as if we're not at the end, if we're looking at this pattern, or you know, you call the Bible matrix, um, what? you know what's your take on uh as far as where we are in the in the cycle and yeah what like i think expect? i mean yeah we're at the point where i mean particularly i mean in the west generally but especially in america where you're seeing such a divide i mean you've got in the in the garden sense you've got the true believers and those who don't believe then you've got the cultural outcome where you've got those who are more sort of conservative and that's a mixed bag it always is and then you've got those who are, you know, progressive. And once again, that's a mixed bag. There are there are people there who are classical sort of liberals. And then you've got the the delusional, rabid, crazy leftists who are just, you know, communists. Um, but there is this division. 
And I think it's it is once again God um at the heart of it is Christ in a sense. I mean, look, once again, you've got progressives who are all for just like mercy, social justice, and they see the gospel, that side of things, whereas uh, the conservatives are more sort of one on a personal responsibility, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. But it does seem like there's this threshing going on, you know, it's, it's that God's throwing the, 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 everything up in the air and the wind is sort of slowly carrying away the chaff. Um, I think the seeds of the next age are always in this age, and we've seen that all the way through um, where you had, um, you know, the testimony to Rome led to the eventual conversion of Rome, um, and then the, the, the European model ended up being uh, broken up when the, during the Reformation and spread across the world, and then eventually you've got leading to the 18th century where you've got missionaries going all around the planet and having great success over time. I mean, that really changed things. We're still seeing the fruit of that today. Hmm. Um, but now I think what we're seeing is that the USA as sort of like the culmination of the West is the has it's such a melting pot um, and such a, you know, there's good theology in the UK, um, but it's a bit, stayed like they're not really america's wild you know like you've got the best of theology and the worst of theology coming out because there's so much freedom and that's where you have the freedom to have people like james jordan who think outside the box but then you've got a lot of real craziness as well that's just a lot of people who are just totally off the rails and making up their own stuff um so you know freedom comes with its blessings like growing up you have more freedom but you got more freedom to make mistakes um but I think the phrase is that God always puts his darlings on the altar. And it's, you know, um, people are very critical of, of Mark Driscoll, rightly so, for what happened at the end. But reading his kind of ministry biography, the reason he succeeded was whenever he reached a, a degree of success, he would put the whole thing on the altar for the sake of more growth. He would take enormous risks. Like he said, just as things were going smoothly and everyone's happy and whatever, he's like, oh, we need to go to the next level. I'm going to take. And, and everyone, you know, it's sort of like the entrepreneur. Everyone's like, what? We just got it all sorted out and you're going to. And the thing is, he'd, he'd put the whole thing on on like, like, like put it as a down payment on a bigger debt, you know, or whatever. Sacrifice willingly, put the whole church and what he built on the altar. And but it would pay off and there would be this growth. And so my my understanding of what happened to him is that, like God in the Old Testament, he keeps putting his son on the altar, including Isaac, for the sake of, and in Israel for the sake of bigger growth. Israel will be put into exile for the sake of greater expansion, and that's what happens at every step. He keeps offering what he has for the sake of a bigger harvest, and that's first fruits and Pentecost. You offer a bit, and then you get more. You put a seed in the ground. And you get, you know, you 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 have seed capital, and then you make a, you make a killing. Um, so everything has suddenly gone really dark. Looking at the, that's very strange. Um, uh, so the idea with Driscoll was he was willing to put everything on the altar until it came down to him. When the point came that he he realized he, this has now outgrown me, I need to put myself on the altar, and then this will that will be my legacy. 
I need to relinquish control. Um, and he wasn't willing to do that because, you know, he that was the test. Whereas with God, it came to the point where he had to put himself on the altar in Christ and he was willing to do that. And so I think that's how we have to understand history. At the moment, America is the model of what God has in plan has planned for the entire world in the next era, where it's a melting pot of the nations, but all together under a Christian umbrella, a Christian moral understanding that is still tolerant to other other peoples and other faiths, but like with Constantine, they're kind of on the fringes. They're still under that um, Christian framework that gives them freedom. And I think that's what the case is. So in a sense, we can't have that unless America goes through this trial by fire to kind of sort it out. It's it's on the altar in a sense. God, it's a, you know, and, and we're in the era where any country can be God's country if we obey God, any country. But the idea is that America did that and with enormous freedom, but as, as always, you know, they kind of ended up stealing the car keys. And you've got, and you know, making global treaties, trying to maintain their power, which is the whole thing with the government departments at the moment that's all coming out, um, you know, borrowing crazy amounts of money to buy off interests around the world just to maintain their power, um, where instead of just trusting God and sending soldiers around the world instead of missionaries, they could have conquered the world, you know. Like that's how you do it. You send missionaries, you fund the missionaries, and then, you don't have to use military force because God harmonizes the nations through the gospel. All the Cains and all the Abels, all the plowshares, you know, are made from the swords. So um, that'll be the next era, but it'll be like the USA, but in a bigger, in a bigger sense. But we've just got to go through this narrow, this narrow portal at this point, which is very unsettling. Yeah. So the best is yet to come. Always the best wine is always at the end. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Um, so I think we've given the listener a lot to chew on. Um, if you haven't you're, had your mind blown already, go ahead and tell us, uh, you know, your your books that you've written and uh, where people can get those. Uh, and I guess we'll wrap up. You can close it out in prayer. Okay. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that there's plenty of bread to uh, get us through the day, things that we can understand easily, things that uh, come to us as children, just basic statements of your love and your care and your promises. But we thank you that there's also meat to chew on and plenty of wine, which can be a bit intoxicating, and we have to uh, master uh, our drinking habits, in a sense, and not get carried away, but uh, that there are things there that, have to be meditated on in order to make us wise. Thank you that we have your spirit to guide us into all truth. Thank you that it's a group project where we all need each other. We all have different observations and um, it's it's your spirit that brings fellowship between us as we learn to harmonize these things and understand them. Um, help us to be charitable in any sort of doctrinal conflict, knowing that we are brothers and uh, that uh, as we submit to you and to your word that you will shed light on these things over time and that you are instructing us through these times of questioning uh, because you've got something bigger for us to do, that you want sons who are wise and just and merciful. 
and uh, you have a great future for us. Help us to understand these things and uh, to continue in our daily uh, trust, knowing that we are dependent upon you for everything. And we thank you that all of those things come to us through your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Uh, man, yeah, so thank you so much for coming. I didn't mean to uh, end so abruptly. I wanted to give you the opportunity to uh, share with the listener where they uh, can uh, get your books and, uh, you know, what, what other books you've written yeah. besides the uh, uh, Revelation one. Yeah. yeah, if you go to biblematrix.com.au, make sure you put the AU on the end, biblematrix.com.au. Uh, there's a link to my Amazon page, which has all the books, and they're gradually getting better, you know. It's one of those things like the, the matrix pattern's all about improving over time. Um, uh, there's also, there's lots of blog posts um, and there's a link to Theo magazine, which has some um, sort of expanded fun, like basic uh, primer stuff on symbolism and bi biblical structure. So that's in the link at the top of the page as well. Uh, but yeah, biblematrix.com.au is kind of the hub. That's the place to visit. Good deal. All right. Um, well, you know, there's so much more we could talk about. I'd love to have you back on maybe to talk about um, something else. Um, it'll be shorter. This something, is definitely something, the longest. Uh, some, something weirder. <laughs> something weirder, yeah. Uh, I think we hit, I think we checked the weird one on this one, though. I mean, uh, um, I think this is so different um, from how people have yeah. uh, talked and heard of uh, the book of revelation being taught and interpreted that uh i think mm. it's 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 unfortunately it's out there as as weird um but uh yeah we'll go ahead and sign off on this one if uh for the listener if you've made it this far um like i said this is probably the longest episode i've ever done but uh but i've enjoyed it man i, I wanted to do it right and uh man you gave wow us much, uh, wow what's on yeah oh boy yeah we have been at it for a we, while we've That's been at okay. it for a while we've been at it for I mean, a while look, you but, could uh, keep asking questions and i would just keep answering them until i probably starve to death that's just how i am you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i'm uh i'm gonna go ahead and um well i guess i'll just say uh you know this is it yep. for the listener oh um, it's been great but fun. I'll, uh, thanks but I just one more thing too is uh, uh, I love questions. So if people want to contact me, and quite a few people do, there's people I'm kind of discipling from a distance and, and sharing resources and things. Um, if they have questions, then, yeah, feel free to contact me through the awesome. the website. Awesome, yeah. awesome, awesome. Cool. Um, all right, man. Uh, well, I've really enjoyed it. Um, it's uh, Yeah, good. It's been good. And you're a good interviewer. You're a good oh, thank interviewer. You. Well, well done. Yeah, yeah, thank you so much, man. Uh Cool. All right. Well, I'll let you enjoy your afternoon. I'm going to bed, man. I'm like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm super tired right now. It's past midnight. Yes, I bet you are. <laughs> uh, okay. All right, man. So, uh, well, I'll keep in touch. Hopefully, uh, we'll talk again soon. Yep. Good. All right. Good See you, brother. All right. Bye. bye. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to share it with somebody you know. And with that being said, we'll catch you on the next one.